So living life one-eyed. I'll tell you, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, everybody knows growing up that if you only have one eye, you, you lose depth perception. You know it, mm -hmm. and you can mm -hmm. play with it for five minutes by closing one of your eyes or whatever. But if you just spend two weeks with only one good eye, it fucking sucks. <laughs> I swear to God, I'm always bumping into people like, like in the supermarket or like mm -hmm. uh, Shake Shack. I just bumped right into a guy because I have no idea how close I am to people. And it's not just depth perception, right? It's a blind side. Like you're living with the blind side. So you have, you know, things coming at you from that side and you don't know they're there until the last second. Yeah. I, what it, to me as a, and, and I'm not driving, uh, I don't even at, but I live in a city, so I don't need to drive. But mm -hmm. as a pedestrian, when I hear footsteps, it's my left eye. And when I hear footsteps on my left from behind me, it's total freak out. It really is. It's, it is <laughs> bizarre because it's like, I don't see them until they're in front of me. Like a primal response. Yeah, well, it's just years of city living. I don't know. You just if you hear footsteps behind you, you know when you're supposed to see them. If they're you know somebody's walking faster than you and they're gonna they're gonna pass you, you just know when you're supposed to see them. And for, it's like five or six feet off for me now. It makes you wonder how pirates got anything done. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's why they use telescopes instead of binoculars. <laughs> Yeah, that's the like they were like binoculars. I only need one. Can you? Can I just? Can I get half off if yeah. I just have the one? Uh, so Matthew Panzerino, welcome to the talk show. I can't believe it's been this long and that you've never been on the show. Yeah, I was. I was starting to get a complex. <laughs> you are my uh, officially delegated surrogate from this week's uh, uh, Apple event two days ago. Yeah, I was uh, life casting. We just had a permanent meerkat open. I just hung my life casting camera around my neck. How about that app? I I, I just joined yesterday. Uh, I haven't done anything with it yet, but uh, mm -hmm. what's the deal with that meerkat? I don't know. I mean, it's interesting for sure. There's <clears throat> there's been live like live streaming stuff like this for a long time. You know, the whole Justin Con, Justin TV thing, which turned into Twitch and the whole bit. So there's it's not like the this is a new concept. It's just there's a bunch of factors that are all aligning to, I think, create an uptake of it. Like Twitter has critical mass now. LTE is everywhere. Um, you know, there's a variety of, of little things that have kind of added up to, I think we're going to see a little resurgence of this. But Meerkat itself is interesting. It's it's one tap. You know, you can start streaming immediately. It doesn't require you set up any accounts because it uses Twitter as a backbone. Um yeah, it's kind of compelling, you know. I, I mean, I, I'm not the kind of person who's going to just stream constantly. But if I'm doing something really interesting, like my first Meerkat I did was on a um, roller coaster at Disneyland. So a couple <laughs> minutes, yeah, yeah. So a couple minutes before I got on California Scream and I opened it up and I started talking to people. And, you know, before I knew it, 30, 40 people are on there, right? And they're just watching me stand in the line for the roller coaster. And so I said, okay, we're going to get on. I, I was like, gave them a little roller coaster history, you know, why this roller coaster was different than other ones, blah, blah, blah. And I just sat there and like 30 people came along with me on the ride. I held it up. I was in front row. I held it up and they rode the roller coaster with me, which I thought was interesting. So, I, but if anybody out there doesn't know, so Meerkat, it's an iPhone app. I don't think it's, is there an iPad version or is it iPhone only? No, it's just iPhone. So yeah. it's iPhone only, no website, no Android? Not that I know of, no. No um, Android yet. iPhone only, you sign in with Twitter. You have to, you know, Twitter is the only option. You sign in with your Twitter account. And if you want to, you can start streaming at any time. And I guess it uses the FaceTime camera. and Or I guess either camera? 
Yeah, either. You can flip it back and forth. Yeah. And when you hit stream, it tweets for you and just says whatever you want it to say. Like, hey, I'm outside the Apple event or, hey, I'm going on Space Mountain. And then mm-hmm. your, you know, your t- Twitter followers will see the tweet. And if they want to, they they tap a thing and it takes them over to the Meerkat app and they can watch it with you. Yeah. It, it's extremely simple. The interface just has a little row of icons that kind of show you the Twitter uh, profile picture of the people that are watching and then they can when they reply to you in app it tweets publicly so the conversation happens in public on twitter oh right 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 and that is i think essential to it is there when Mm -hmm. they reply to you the tweets show up in the app itself so Mm -hmm. you could hold like and i saw a bunch of a whole bunch of people did this after the app event is they'd hold a meerkat session and do like q a and their twitter followers could say hey am i can i just buy the milanese band on my own yes yes you can you know whatever but Mm -hmm. they can ask the questions and you see them right and i think that that feedback that instantaneous access to people is compelling i I have a uh i'm kind of thinking about this like what does it do what what is the purpose i mean i don't know what the purpose is i don't know whether they're going to be able to monetize it i don't know whether it's a fad you know i don't know any of that stuff i'm not trying to predict the future on that but it does seem interesting to me as a sort of empathy machine because when you see produced video of a person, there's a disconnect. You know, stuff that's something that's not live, it's not immediate. And I think that Snapchat, Meerkat, Vine, a lot of these things that are producing sort of rawer content, those are kind of all along the lines of these empathy machines where they create a feeling of empathy with the person that you're watching and the person that's viewing. And so that's an interesting thing to me. Whether or not it'll last, I don't know. But that's that's kind of... Something to watch, I think. It seems to me my first take, and I, I, I'm late to pick this up. Like I said, I only even signed up for it yesterday, I think, um, or maybe the day before. But uh, it, and I get. When did it come out? Like last week? Yeah, it's it's kind of a long story. They had, they had this other thing, and then they they stopped doing it because they had a lot of problems. But this was an offshoot of that. And a couple of weeks ago, they put it on Product Hunt. And it just kind of took off from Product Hunt, mm. uh, and a bunch of the Technorati started using it. And then, you know, because the, it's <laughs> it's sort of an incestuous Twitter group, everybody started grabbing it and watching the, the streams, and then creating their own. Because, like I said, it's one tap. So once you open the app, you can start streaming immediately. There's no complicated setup. No, and it's you know it it, it does seem like a typical Valley venture play because surely the the all this free streaming is costing them money. I mean, streaming is not cheap. Uh, right. Right. Um, Absolutely. It's not, it's, it's gotta take a, a nice backbone of server architecture to, to execute. And Twitter just actually bought a, an unlaunched sort of version of Meerkat called Periscope. Um, we, we we heard that they had bought it a, a week ago and I guess somebody else just confirmed it um, yesterday or whatever, but it's, it's very interesting in terms of a Twitter accessory, you know? Yeah. Well, but that's interesting too, though, that they Twitter just bought somebody who does the same thing. Cause to me, it seems as though meerkats play is to get bought by Twitter. <laughs> right. Because right. <laughs> it's, and I don't blame them. Like in some sense, no. in some ways, putting the business aside and who's going to buy, whether you're hoping to IPO or whether you're hoping that Twitter buys you or somebody it's, it's very interesting to me that the one and only way to sign into the thing is Twitter, that they're completely building it as a, I mean, and who knows, they might change that in the future, but at least right mm-hmm. now it is completely built on the back of Twitter. And right. like you said, the, 
the replies go out as tweets. Everything is a public conversation outside of Meerkat on Twitter, other than the stream itself, which is in Meerkat. Yeah, and I think they did that. I think the founder said something. I was watching a little thread with them. I didn't ask him personally, but he said that they did it that way because their previous product, which was also a streaming product of some sort, uh, they had a lot of problems with trolling. You know, with people streaming and then people jumping on there and creating usernames or whatever and, and being acidic or, or you know, crappy to people streaming. And so they, they said that the public conversation actually worked better. People were more on, <laughs> on point. I believe you know. But yeah. And also, it also sort of puts the onus on Twitter to handle the creation of throwaway spam accounts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which, you know, exactly. is something Twitter obviously has to be doing anyway. It's not certainly not like they're adding to Twitter's burden. No, no. I mean, they. It, it's a smart move to offload any of the complexities of creating a commenting structure or account management to another network, as long as your model isn't hurt by the fact that you're not owning your network. And so that's, as you mentioned, that's one of the key things. It's like, what are they trying to do? Well, it seems like they need to be sort of held in the bosom of a larger thing unless they figure out a way to monetize it that doesn't remove the simplicity. You know, what are you going to do? Meerkat with like sponsored by such and such layered over the top of it? I don't know. Maybe, you know. Uh, uh, so you did a Meerkat from outside the event? Yeah, I did. Yeah, so I popped. Well, I did actually one um, kind of inside the event just before it. Um, you know, they they typically get uh, kind of angry at you if you stream the stuff because they're already streaming it or whatever. So I just did a little bit before the event to let people see what what was going on inside there, and then a little bit from the demo room, uh, and you know, kind of let people walk around and and um, and then I did uh, did a question Q and A Q&A afterwards um, in the Saint Regis, which is. Uh, across the street, and I was just sat in the lobby there and answered a bunch of questions. People uh, were tweeting me about like the watch and the laptop and stuff, just trying to stream of consciousness it. All right. Yeah. Yeah. How many people did you get watching those? Uh, like the the final Q and A did. I think I got like two hundred fifty or so. Wow, that's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, as a fraction of people, because remember, this is a synchronous thing, right? right? It's you cannot. It's not asynchronous in any way, shape, or form. People have to be fully dedicated. Their whole iPhone screen is given over to you. This is why, by the way, these VCs are, are salivating, right? And looking at these apps and going like, oh my God, you know, because yeah. you're, you're actually reaching out and taking over somebody's complete attention and their entire screen of their iPhone. And anytime you can do that, I mean, that's, that's insane, you know, to yeah. them. I think that the next five years is going to be a traditional. A, a transition. It's already started. I, to me, it started with Instagram when Instagram started iPhone only. And that's, you know, years ago at this point. Um, mm-hmm. But I feel like Instagram was so far ahead of its time in terms of going app only to, to launch. And I feel like the next five years is going to be a transition in that direction. And not even just phone only. I mean, clearly, eventually, you know, you could go watch only at this point. I mean, as we'll get into over the course of the show, but mm-hmm. that doing a website and making it a web service that anybody can just go to, you know, I guess it would be meerkat.com or whatever is an mm-hmm. old way of thinking. And not that it's a bad, not that it's bad and not that there won't be in the future brand new things that start as websites and have success and they're appropriate. It's just that there are certain ideas and concepts that work better or best, or maybe even only as an app. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think you're you're sort of unlocking. Uh, I, I would have to say most of it is around is built around context, right? Because the mobile device offers there's only really one context for web, and that's that somebody's looking at their computer screen. Whereas the context for mobile is a lot of things: your location, your speed, your the weather. Like right? there's lots of other things that are coming into play when you have a mobile device that could be literally anywhere in the world at any altitude above the surface of the planet, you know, or below. And all of a sudden, you've got a lot of more, lot more variety of stuff. You know, what if somebody's creates a version of Meerkat just for spelunkers, right? right. Oh, I you know I love spelunking. I want to watch the spelunking channel well it's no longer a channel on a website it's a it's a bespoke app you know just watching spelunkers go down in caves and i think that there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff like that whether or not those will scale i don't know you know but the other thing too and i think you touched on this a few minutes ago is that it's like with lte and its pervasiveness and its relative incredible speed is just how mm -hmm. far we've come so quickly like you know eight Seven years ago, when we had the original iPhone, it didn't even do video, and mm -hmm. let alone have a front-facing camera. It had one camera shooting in the back, didn't do video, period, mm -hmm. and had edge cellular networking, which really struggled even to load complex web pages. Mm -hmm. And seven years later, people are streaming live high-definition <laughs> video from the from the secondary camera on the device. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's really good. I mean, the video quality is pretty solid. I mean, there are some finicky stuff. Uh, there's some finicky stuff about it. I think they need to improve. But it's, I mean, I've watched streams obviously, and it's it, transportive. You know, you're you're there, and yeah. that is insane. The fact that we can, and I've walked around with it and moved. And I remember, I remember with video streaming, they we went through this. We went through this whole period where the the bandwidth was so poor on cellular, but just enough, but but too poor to really support it. Where you would get this bursty thing, where it was just like, oh, you know, well, it's fine, and then it's really really bad for ten minutes, yeah. and that that would kill it, right? You would be like, I'm not going to watch this. This is annoying, you know, it's stuttery or whatever. So any if any one of those little factors doesn't work, then live streaming doesn't work. So now we've got all the kind of pieces. So it'll be interesting to see if it actually explodes this time. Yeah. Um yeah, I think um, it's de it definitely caught my eye, and the design of the app did too. Like it is, like you said, it's one tap. And to me, I know it's like you think like, well, they're you know they have a simple idea. To it's really hard to get there design wise to get it mm -hmm. so that you can do something like that. Like this, the more brain dead, simple, stupid something looks, the harder it was to get from the original idea down to that, you know, one button away from streaming simplicity. Right. Uh, one of the indicators that I see of how easy it is, it's actually funny, but I've seen this a lot because I've been kind of watching it as I, I picked it up a couple of weeks ago and then and have been investigating other stories about other similar setups is I've been, I've been kind of monitoring which people join and when they start streaming. And I've noticed that almost everybody, you, you didn't because I got the push notification for you joining, but because it basically uses your Twitter network. So you're, I'm going to get a notification for anybody I follow on Twitter joining it, right? Right. But I noticed that almost everybody joins and then immediately starts streaming. And I'm convinced it's because they think there's more steps <laughs> and they hit the stream button. 
and then it just starts streaming. And by the time I see the notification, and then I go in, they've already stopped. And I have an I need to ask somebody who does it next time they do it. Did you just do it because you thought there'd be like more setup or more steps? And I think it's because. They go, oh, there's got to be more. And they just hit the stream button to see, oh, what do I have to do to set this up? And boom, their camera's on, and they're like, oh. And then they shut it off. Well, it's a funny thing, too. Not even funny, but just interesting. And to me, you know, it, I, I, I'd be shocked if they don't come out with an Android version sooner rather than later. I mean, I, but mm-hmm. but going iOS first, you in addition to being able to piggyback off Twitter and the social um, – graph as they call it the social graph that you already inherit by by using that as your thing and that you don't have to create your own user account system and you don't have to police your own spam account thing etc etc but by going on ios you also get to piggyback off the built-in support for twitter account system wide and so you don't even have to type your password you just Mm -hmm. say hey meerkat wants to use your twitter account is that all right yes use this twitter account that i've already configured and you're in and that is huge too, because even if you have a shitty password, even if you're not, uh, you know, doing the right thing and having you know uppercase and lowercase and numbers and punctuation and and all sorts of stuff, and it still is always a pain in the ass. It's even a pain in the ass to type in a shitty password. Truth be told, mm-hmm. uh, and they totally get to skip that in terms of just getting people on on board. Right, and that that conversion rate goes way up when you have that access. Like any shopping cart, you know, if you're logged into Amazon, you're much more likely to buy toilet paper or whatever than if you're not logged in. You have to find your password. So it's the same concept. Yeah, and then the well, I'm even thinking like just to say somebody's following you, and maybe they've heard of Meerkat, whatever. But and then they see that you say you're tweeting from the Apple event, and they're like, "Oh shit, I would like to see that." He's not even goofing around right now. This is something. Follow the link. Download the app launch the app boom you're in like you could and and like you said it's it's synchronous you know you have to you're you're doing this live but even somebody who hadn't even downloaded the app could catch in and jump into your stream and i would honestly say a minute right like Mm -hmm. give it 30 seconds for the app to download and 30 well they have a web experience so they do have a web version it just doesn't you can't comment you can't see all the stuff, but you can see, you can watch the stream on the web. So they did provide a web viewer, like a bare bones viewer, but it runs on Flash and it's not great. So it, it sort of acts as a teaser. But yeah, I think you're right. I think you could within a minute download the app, log in because of obviously it's pre-logged in for you essentially. Uh, you just have to opt in and then start watching the stream. Absolutely. Yeah. As long as somebody didn't shut down the stream within a minute, you'd be watching them. Yeah, I think that a lot of people who are going to join are going to do it be- at, at some point when they see, oh, here's a stream I'm actually interested in starting right now. I better jump in. And you can do mm-hmm. it because of the you know the fact that they're piggybacking off the system uh, user, you know, Twitter accounts and, and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. All right, let me take a break before we start talking about the event. And uh, uh, I want to talk about our first sponsor. It's our good friends at Igloo. Igloo is an internet you'll actually like. You can share news, organize your files, coordinate calendars, and manage projects all in one place. Their latest upgrade, Viking, uh, like the football team from Minnesota, Viking, revolves around documents and how you interact with them, gather feedback, and make changes. They've even added the ability to track 
who has read critical information to keep everyone on the same page. So if you've got like a document that needs approval or needs everybody to sign off on it, you can mark it so that, hey, show me who's seen it. And then when you post it um, to Igloo, you'll get uh, like effectively read read receipts for who's seen it if you want it. It's like read receipts in your email or an iMessage, but less annoying. Uh, And it helps you track whether your colleagues have read or acknowledged policies signed off on legal agreements or, uh, you know, anything like that, confirmed the completion of training materials, whatever. Uh, If your company, if your team has a legacy internet that looks like it was built in the 90s, and it probably does, you should give Igloo a try. You can sign up for a free trial, up to 10 people, use it for free, at igloosoftware.com slash TTS, like the talk show, TTS. Uh, I think you can also use slash the talk show, and that will work as well. So my thanks to Igloo. Uh, if you have a team, you need an internet, go check them out at igloosoftware.com slash TTS. So the event Monday. Mm-hmm. What do you think overall? I thought it was good. I mean, there are several standout things for me. I mean, I think that as usual, when they have said something before and they say it again, like this happens a lot at WWDC, you get a lot of the whole rehashed stuff and people kind of tune out, you know, until they, somebody says something new. So there was some of that going on with the watch stuff. But I think that there were several key things. Obviously, leading with Research Kit was a very a big curveball. And I think anybody in my feed and, and people in our back channel were were definitely like, what, uh, what, wait, what, what are we talking about? What is this? And I think that that was a, a smart move to kind of start with that and, and say, hey, we're going to talk about this cool thing we're doing instead of maybe at the end where everybody's like, oh, yeah, well, whatever. You obviously put this at the end because nobody cares, right? Um, so I think that was interesting. The whole research kit thing is, I think, an, an enormous long-term project for I, them. I thought it was a research kit. I, number one, it was interesting in and of itself, but it was interesting in so far as that it completely went against the last two months narrative of Apple is totally backing away from health monitoring and all this <laughs> like uh, health and you know fitness uh, tracking stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it did fly in that face, uh, fly in the face of that stuff, and I don't think that wasn't calculated. If that if that makes sense, I think they probably definitely uh, acknowledged that it was going on and knew that it was going on, and and uh, it didn't hurt that that was right up front. The big thing to me, obviously, when he said it was open sourced, I think everybody kind of was like, "Whoa," you know, and they didn't necessarily expect that. But it, in hindsight, it makes complete sense. So, Research Kit is this framework that allows organizations like hospitals to do um, patient research. On conditions like Parkinson's and other other conditions, and gather feedback essentially from those patients as far as the their symptoms and their reactions to treatments, and that's a that's an enormous you know I, I hesitate to say market, but it's an enormous opportunity I guess for for hospitals. Yeah, it's it's definitely it is clear just from how much time they spent on it in the event that it's a major initiative and it really does seem as though you know it's uh, it's all new territory there's never been anything like this before no and there the difference they did they said this in the keynote that a lot of the research on this is done with very small sample sizes yes. and it's done on paper and a lot of stuff like that and that's all accurate i i talked to some people about this and you know they're 
they're incredibly excited. You know, people that are in this field, in the medical field, they're like, whoa, you know, this is going to be awesome. Because, yeah, the iPhone is still a demo, right? iPhone owners, that's still a demographic. So you're not necessarily getting the absolute, you know, broadest spectrum, but it's way more than a thousand people with pieces of paper, you know? So that's, it's going to be big, I think. Yeah, and with the, regarding the open source, I saw a lot of cynicism in that regard, uh, specifically hearkening back to the announcement of FaceTime. Uh, <laughs> that's gonna bite. That's gonna come back to bite them over and over. I think until well, they do something about it. When was that? Two twenty ten. 2010, 2011? I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I think so. I don't remember exactly. But yeah. you know, obviously, Steve Jobs was still alive because it was Steve Jobs who announced that, and we're going to make it an open protocol. I don't think he said open source. I think he said mm -hmm. we're going to make it an open protocol, uh, so that you know everybody, you know, other phone makers could or computer makers, whoever could make FaceTime compatible software. And yeah. obviously, that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, the quote was, we're going to the standards bodies starting tomorrow, right. and we're going to make FaceTime an open industry standard. Okay. And that was in 2010 at so, WWDC. So there's a lot of people who are like, so yeah, I'll bet this is going to be open source <laughs> right after FaceTime. But so the, here's the thing. This truly is one of those, like, uh, things are different without Steve Jobs. Like, yeah. I've said to people on Twitter, Steve Jobs was impetuous. And I know for a fact that the FaceTime team found out that they were going to take it to open standards bodies uh, exactly when we did, when it was announced on stage. <laughs> like, that, oh, that's brutal. That was something that Steve Jobs decided during rehearsals the week prior to the announcement. He was like, why not? You know, let's do this. And didn't talk to the lawyers, didn't talk to the team. So the source code, nothing was written with the idea that it would be an open standard. And that I know. And then this, I don't know, but it's, I'm pretty sure having talked to people over the years about it, that um, they've had a lot of lawsuits regarding, you know, patent related lawsuits regarding FaceTime. Mm -hmm. um, and at least one of them, made them change the protocol at some point. And, uh, cause there was, and I think it actually related to a time when FaceTime got flakier, like they had to do so they had to make some changes and it actually made it worse. Uh, oh yes. I remember that it was their routing protocol or something. Yeah. It was it, the way that they handed off from like a phone call from a cellular network to the data network or something like yeah, that. Yeah. It was, I, I don't know the, the details. I don't think are as interesting as the, just the basic story though, which is that patent litigation forced them to change the protocol. So they couldn't have even gotten, you know, it, they couldn't even keep the protocol that they shipped with themselves, let alone make it an <laughs> open standard. And, and there are so it's, the whole area is so patent encumbered that it just that it's more or less why they've given up on it. I mean, and mm -hmm. who knows? Maybe someday they will submit it. You know, they'll have it in shape to do. But in terms of it's been you know four or five years and it hasn't happened. It's because when they when Steve Jobs announced it, it just was not a vetted vetted by engineering or vetted by legal declaration. It was Jobs saying we're going to make it a, you know an open standard and, and can happen. Right. Tim Cook is not that type of CEO. Like if they no, say they're no, going to no. open source health or uh, uh, not health kit, but uh, research kit, they're going to open source it. 
And I would yeah. guess that the research kit team knew that plan all along and, you know, has been right. I, I, I don't know. I don't know anybody. I have no sources on the research kit team. So, I, you know, there could be people in Cupertino listening to this podcast going, oh, God, you're so wrong. We're fucked. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we, we found out uh, same time you did. But um, I, my guess yeah. is, though, that they knew this all along and that they've written it. Because it is true. This is very true. It is really hard to open source any significant code base that was not intended to be open source from the get-go. It's just – talk to any programmer. It's it's just axiomatic. Yeah, and I'm not a programmer. So this is, is this is essentially because it's interwoven with stuff that you don't want to open source, right? Yeah, and, you know, it's almost yeah. like designing a, a space, like a building. Like if you – you know, a space that's meant for the public to come in is different than a space that you is not meant for the public to come in. Just, you know, in terms of where you put the doors, where you put locks, what's, you know, bolted down. Uh, and, yeah, and, like, what libraries you use, what dependencies you have, you know, it's – yeah. So my guess is that this will be open source right on schedule with no hitches. Yeah. <laughs> well, the schedule thing, it would be interesting. But yeah, I don't think it'll be a year's delay or or nobody's ever going to talk about it again like FaceTime. It's, it doesn't make sense. I mean, what they're trying to do only actually makes sense if other people have access to it. it, it I mean, not what they're trying to do, but the spirit in which they're trying to do it. Right. So if they're trying to say we are genuinely interested in improving the quality and quantity of research in this arena, then the only way to really honor that is to say it's not just iPhone users. You know, we're going to open source it so anybody can access this framework and and do these things. It's just work we need. We felt we needed to do. And Cook said something essentially reiterating his I'm we don't pay attention to the ROI statements at yeah. the recent shareholders meeting. He said something about research kit and and um some other efforts they did as, as far as like diversity stuff. And so it's I think it is genuinely a thing. Sure, it's good PR for them, right? Obviously, but it it also is something I think that where they saw an opportunity that they could execute on this because they were already doing stuff in that space and it would benefit them for sure, but it would also benefit you know the public at large, and why not? You know, and, and at this point, they have the resources and money to spend on these things, and it just seems like Cook is more willing to say, "Okay, you you people do this. You take this chunk of resources and do this." Yeah, I I agree. I you know I think that it doesn't mean you have to be any less cynical about Apple as a for profit corporation, but that it's true. Some of the stuff they do is not about the ROI. I know that I, I didn't see anything about the shareholders meeting yesterday, but um, I know he repeated that again a week or two ago when he was in Europe. And I think it was when he was in London and, and somebody, you know, he took questions from store employees and there was press there and that somebody asked about um, accessibility and whether mm -hmm. the watch was going to be accessible. And he just said it will be and that they take it seriously. And it's just one of those things where they don't measure the ROI. They don't measure whether they sell enough iPhones to vision impaired people to justify the cost of the engineering of making everything accessible to, they don't even measure it because it's just the right thing to do. And clearly they can do it and still be very profitable. It's just the right thing to do. And right. I believe that I truly believe that they don't measure the ROI on stuff like that. Yeah, and and he said that this at this shareholders meeting, I guess he said Apple didn't do this for the ROI in reference to research kit. This just isn't the lens Apple uses. That was the yeah. um the phrase that he used. And of course, we got as a as a news organization, we get 
you know, pitches from, from everybody immediately after following this. And so we get pitches from these people that are either shareholder interest people or conservative organizations or, you know, capitalist advocates and stuff. We get all these pitches immediately afterwards. And so they're like, oh, we were very disappointed with Tim Cook denigrating capitalism and, you know, all this stuff. (laughs) It's actually pretty amazing how vociferous people get when he says, I mean, that's a small statement, but it is very tricky to say that and and very tricky to say it about the right things because his job is to maximize investor return as an overall ceo so it's it's a powerful statement or more powerful than i think people give it credit for i would actually I, that's actually a a a like 80s going forward thing and it's actually not the job of the ceo there is like mm. it's people say that it's it's become like part of the um it, it, there's a lot of people who who's put it in those terms that the job of the ceo is to maximize investor returns and it's actually not true you can't there is no legal definition that says that it's the ceo does answer to the shareholders and the shareholders do have a reasonable expectation that they're that the company will be managed in a way that you know doesn't devalue the company um but that is it's sort of an 80s going forward justification for for the sort of logic that leads to the quarter by quarter, you know, mm. to mm-hmm. do whatever it takes. That's actually traditionally is not really the the view of the CEO. And I think Cook definitely has that old school, like he's thinking every bit as much about where Apple's going to be in 25, 30 years as he is where they're going to be next quarter. And, but anyway, long story short though, I think nobody, the thing that's different about Apple is their, and, and again, you can be completely cynical about their, their ruthless capitalism is their profit margins across the board. But by focusing and maintaining these unprecedented 30 to 35, 36, 37% profit margins on, with with average selling prices that are way above the competition. So they have higher margins and higher selling average selling prices for phones, for laptops, for desktops, for tablets. Definitely for the watches. <laughs> and definitely for watches. Um, that's what allows them to do things on their periphery that may not have an ROI. You know, uh, right. uh, uh, you know it's... It, by focusing on and keeping these high profit margins and overall and incredible amounts of profit, they don't have to do, you know, sweat the details on stuff like that. Like, I don't think that they're reckless with their money at all. If anything, I think that they're still relatively conservative, maybe even too conservative, uh, you know, with their spending. But that's, that's how you become so insanely profitable is by being conservative with your spending. What was it last year? I thought, I thought, and, and, you know, I, I don't mean, I thought Tim Cook's two big moments last year were when he, his essay in business week where he came out as gay, which was, I thought very eloquent and just perfectly timed. Absolutely. And his downright angry uh, response at last year's shareholder meeting. Again, we're talking about return on investment with uh, the, the, the conservative guy who, who was upset about their uh, stance on global warming and that they're, um, you know, spending billions of dollars on solar power for their data centers. And now they've announced a new thing where they're spending billions of dollars on solar power to power the campus. Um, you know, and he was upset about that. Like, why are you wasting, how can you justify wasting shareholder money on, on, you know, this theory that, you know, that the 
and Cook just cut. <laughs> I mean, he, Cook got angry. I've ne- oh no, he did. Yeah, that was like the that's the only time I thought that you've ever seen in public. You've ever seen Tim Cook off message ever, and not that he. I don't think he regrets it at all. But he really he got angry. It's kind of scary. Yeah, yeah, I know. I can I can't even imagine. You know. <laughs> Because he's such a calm, collected guy. It's so different when somebody's bombastic. You kind of expect it from them. But I think it was definitely a departure from the script and a departure from his his demeanor cracked a little bit. And not necessarily in a bad way, but just in a you know very human way. You know, he felt very passionately about, about that subject. And I think that there's the cynicism, as you mentioned. It's good. As a journalist, it's helpful to have cynicism, a, a general overall skepticism. But I think that the cynicism towards technology and larger companies like Apple especially because of the the enormous amounts of power that they wield it has to be balanced right and i think that this these kinds of subjects where you're talking about a company like apple saying we're going to do this regardless of return there's a lot of instinctual desire to paint that as a pr move or as something like that and i i don't i don't hang out with tim cook we don't play golf i don't know but it just doesn't feel – it feels organic. It doesn't feel manufactured to me at all. Yeah, I agree. I thought um, with the sweater, with the zip-up sweater that he had on, <laughs> he the word that came to mind was uh, avuncular. <laughs> right. He seems like he's sort of the company's uncle, you know, that everybody <laughs> looks up to. And, you know, he's, he's not – their executive team is pretty much – around the same age everybody is sort of like 50 to 55 it's not like he is older but his hair is a little grayer than than most um and so it does he sort of has like elder statesman makes him seem old it's not old but there's sort of like i don't know and the sweater just sort of emphasized it he's like the the uncle that everybody looks up to mm-hmm. yeah i think there's a a, a power for him uh, in feeling like he's collected you know like he has he's comfortable in the the power in the role that he's in because i think a lot of times you see these ceos who obviously you and i both know over the past decade everybody has tried to replicate apple's sort of we're actually going to bring the company man out on stage and he's going to be convincing and they almost always fail but you see a lot of these guys come out and it it feels very much like um you know, I got coached for for four weeks to deliver this speech, and I'm delivering it, but you don't really believe in any of that. But he's feeling more and more comfortable with the power that he wields, and it seems like it's it's one of those things where he comes out, he's, set, he's in control, he has this presence where you believe that he actually does have a handle on what's going on. And Steve had that in a different way where you felt that the things he was saying reflected his passions and his passions drove the company. Whereas it seems like the things that cook is saying reflect the, the passions of the people inside the company. So it just seems like a little bit of a different balance there. I think the single most important aspect of Tim cook's leadership as CEO and his person that, that what made him so suited to take over when he did is that he truly seems completely secure with mm. the fact that he is in no way Steve Jobs. And I I think it's almost incredible. Like, he's nowhere near – he's very good. He's very smart. He's doing a great job. The company is incredibly successful. 
so far under his leadership. But nobody is ever going to doubt. Nobody. I don't think. I mean, I think, you know, the way things will play out, like in the history of the industry, he will not be as famous or revered or as, you know, looked back upon 100 years from now as Steve Jobs. Right. Steve Jobs mm -hmm. is Thomas Edison. You know, he's Henry Ford. He's, you know, we're going to be talking about him for long after, you know, we're dead. Mm -hmm. uh, and he is totally secure in that. He that, that doesn't bother him one bit. He, he understands it. He knows it. And he's fine with it. It doesn't bother him at all. There's no part of his ego that is bothered by that. And I think that is extraordinary. And I think it's a true. It's just remarkable. Because I think that you know almost anybody else who would have taken over, it would have been inevitable that they'd it would it would eat at them. Yep, yep, I agree. It takes a lot. It takes a lot of comfort to not put that. It wasn't even that other people because other people are going to compare and do compare Tim to Steve as far as management style or success or whatever. But to not put that on yourself, I mean, that's an insane thing and i'm sure you know he thinks about it a lot but it doesn't seem like he lets it get in his way you know in some other universe where steve either didn't get sick or or beat beat it and stayed ahead of it and had you know a full career and stayed at you know at the helm as ceo until he was you know 70 years old uh and it was a planned and obvious transition and there was no tragedy involved there still would have had to been as somebody who followed steve jobs and it would have been hard but it's so much harder to do it like Tim Cook did in a way where everybody, Cook included, wishes it had hadn't hadn't had to happen, right? It's yeah. it, it's just and yeah. I you know it's been you know what three years? Yeah, it's been like yeah. three three years, three and a, almost you know coming up on three and a half years. Um, it's, you know, it, it clearly feels like it's in the past tense that, you know, when Steve was around, it feels, you know, it's like this is Tim's apple, but I still feel like we, we underestimate just what an extraordinary position that thrust him into. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and the, <laughs> there, in most transitions like this, there's a situation where you have a clear cut goal, like, oh, we need to fix this or fix that. And the hardest position to come into as a, an incoming CEO is to not screw up something that's already incredibly <laughs> successful. Right, exactly. Like, that's the worst one. Right. You know, there's all kinds of other scenarios, but that's the, oh man, that's the worst. Because <laughs> the only thing you could do, if you are you are the best thing, your best person at your job ever, you're just going to get people going, okay, good, you didn't screw it up. And if you're the worst, I mean, this, if you are, you know, screw up even a little bit and things go downwards, then it's, you know, then you're the worst. You're awful and you're horrible and everybody blames you. Yeah. So it's just a thing. It was a thankless thing. And I think he's handled it pretty well. Yeah. Um, when I say, and we'll do another break, but uh, yeah. uh, Jeff Williams first onstage appearance for research kit. Mm -hmm. Well, his, I, I should say I reworded it. It was his first onstage appearance at a keynote and it was for research kit. Uh, I think that's noteworthy. I think that there is a sort of implicit, uh, uh, you know, there's a whole page of what a dozen, a dozen plus senior executives at Apple that they list as their senior leadership. But the ones who speak on stage, I think there's an implicit, uh, you know, they're the A team: Schiller, Federighi, um, Johnny Ive is an exception, but he does, you know, he does all these videos. Um, mm -hmm. And I think Jeff Williams getting elevated to that level is a sign that he's leveled up within the company. 
Yeah, there's a sort of line on the page, and I don't want to <laughs> not read too much into the page layout, but there's a sort of line, and below it is Paul Deneuve and Lisa Jackson and you know Joe Padolny, uh, and then above that, Jeff Williams is the last person above that. No, line. but that, the, above that, it's, <laughs> but, it's alphabetical you know, order. Right, right, exactly, and I think that he's definitely part of that group. Obviously, people like Luca won't be on the stage necessarily because that's just not Apple's thing. Um, you know, somebody like Dan, I, I could see making an appearance maybe at some point. Um, Johnny obviously chooses not to, as far as I've heard. Um, you know, Bruce is a GC, so he's not yeah. really, that's not his thing. But uh, um, amongst that other group, the only person that hasn't been on there that I, I think will eventually would be Angela, right? Yeah. So I think that Jeff being in that group of people that presents is Im- important. And I also thought that um, Kevin Lynch coming out, and he did a, actually a really good job. Well, we'll talk about was, that. Was interesting. Yeah, I thought too. so too. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, well, Bruce Sewell as the general counsel, I think if anybody went to him as, as the lawyer and said, like, hey, we want you to come out on stage and speak publicly, he'd be like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I would advise you not to. Yeah. You just know that that guy is a stone cold killer. He's just, he's a scary guy, you know. Um, I think that uh, I, as a, you know, spitball, I predicted that maybe Angela Arntz would appear on stage. Um, and then a lot of people wrote to me afterwards, like, oh, what do you think? She didn't. Uh, I think it's simple because they didn't have, they didn't, it was, it, my theory that maybe she would was tied to the idea that they would talk about these, the store retail changes that are yep. coming. Um, yep. All they had was a table with a glass top. Yeah. Was she going to go on there and introduce a table with a glass top? Yeah. You I, know, so, it, yeah, it, I agree. I, I think I, she you know, will eventually. She would have been if they had some. I think yeah. she will eventually. Uh, but I think that it would be in the context of retail. It, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's no – her. there's too many people who I think are reading into her background and the fact that they're getting into watches and think that she's doing product marketing or product development on watch and stuff like that. Like, no, her job is right. the head retail. And trust me, her hands are full. Like that's more than enough work for her to do. So if she were to come on stage, it would be to talk about retail. It would not be mm-hmm. to, you know, talk about watch features or something like that. Yeah. When I, when she got hired, I did, um, I finally published a piece that I've been like working out for months about it just before the event. And then nobody promptly, nobody read it because of the event, obviously. But, um, when she got hired, I kind of asked around, you know, at Apple a little bit, just people I knew, and said, so what, you know, is she going to be involved in the watch? Because that's what a lot of people, as you said, a lot of people were assuming, oh, she's they're not just hiring her for retail, they're hiring her to, to help develop the watch or, you know, work on that, that aspect of it. And they said, don't overestimate the amount of involvement that that retail would have in product development you know she's not sitting in on on product uh feature roundtables, right you know necessarily um and i'm i don't i don't know this for sure obviously this is just people giving me general kind of hints of, about how apple works so i just yeah she's not she's in, definitely involved in the retail side of things which i think there's plenty of work to do there yeah i i say this not to be dismissive as to her skills no. and abilities and taste i say this only knowing that being in charge of retail for the most profitable per square foot retailer in the world who is expanding at a very consistent, not, you know, not overly aggressive, not reckless, but expanding and expanding in places as politically delicate as China. It's more than enough work. It's a ton of work. I'm sure that she is working her ass off every day and that just on the retail alone. 
but I think that, yeah. you know, when, if and when we see her on stage, it'll be in that context. All right, let me take another break here and thank our next sponsor. And it's our good friends at Harry's. Harry's makes premium men's shaving goods. They make razors. They make blades. Uh, they make shaving cream and gel. They have aftershave. Uh, everything you need to take care of your shaving needs. And they do it right. It's top quality stuff and at a great price. Really, truly, go to Amazon, measure it against the stuff from Gillette, about half the price uh, of the major com big brand competitors for blades. How do they do it? Well, they do it by cutting out the middleman, cutting out the advertising, and by taking control themselves. Um, they bought their own factory in Germany that makes razor blades, a factory that was already doing it. They bought it. Uh, they make their own blades. They are top-notch, super sharp, really high quality. Uh, they're not just like a company that has a cool brand and they white label the blades from, you know, whatever factory anywhere in the world. No, they make their own blades, really great stuff. They make their own handles. They're really great design. It doesn't look like the, the blingy, uh, crap that you get from Gillette or Schick or those guys. Stuff that looks like you buy it now and 30, 40 years from now, it's going to look exactly the same when you buy another one from Harry's because it's just a simple, plain, timeless, classy design. Uh, and all the details are right. You pick up the, the handle, it just feels good in your hand. It's like a nice, solid, just a nice, solid thing. Really almost Apple-like in terms of just caring about how something feels, like the heft of it. Uh, and really, really great prices. Uh where do you go to find out more? Go to harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Uh, and when you buy something, uh, use this code, talk show. They don't put the the in there. It's just talk show. Use that code and you'll save, I think, five bucks off your first order. You'll save something. If you've never bought anything from Harry's before, use that code and uh, you'll save a couple bucks. And their starter kit is only like 15 bucks. So you can get started with that code. You get started for like 10 bucks. You'll get a handle, three blades, uh, really nice packaging. Uh, really, you're, you're, I hate to say it, but you're stupid if you don't take them up on it. It's a great deal. So my thanks to Harry's. I actually use their stuff. It's great, right? Yeah, it's pretty solid. I mean, I, uh, I tried it on kind of a whim when I first heard about them. And um, I've been using them ever since. It took me a while to use the angle of the blades. It's like really flat in comparison to like a Gillette Turbo, whatever you know, with the eighteen blades on it, that strips your skin from your flesh. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. I do know what you mean. Where it is yeah. sort of more of a, yeah, it's like a, yeah, like a flat. Yeah, flat's a good way to put it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, works well. Yeah, really great stuff. Back to the event. So after Jeff Williams and research kit, uh, it was the new MacBook, and at mm -hmm. this point, to me. To me, it's almost like it was like two events because this to me was just pure Apple, right? And it's like, and Schiller does this stuff great. I know there's some people who think that he is, uh, I don't know what people say. So people, some people think he's a little like, not flat, but that he's, uh, he's like unenthusiastic on stage. I think that he's got the, I think he's got this stuff down so cold. He's so good. I think he's their best presenter by far. And he does it. He, yeah. He just knows how to do it, and it's just it was just such a typical Apple product introduction. I thought it was really good, I, and I think I it, think he understands the stuff, right? Yeah, so definitely. I, I think that's the difference between like a presenter and somebody who goes out there and 
and happens to present this thing that they've been working on. And obviously he doesn't do hardware, he's marketing, but still he just get he understands holistically what makes it special and he's trying to he's trying to really just tell you why. And that's the feel that you get, I think, when he goes to I, stage. But I think it's genuine. And I, I've said before, like I that's how product marketing works at Apple. Like it's not like somebody like Johnny Ives team comes up with a design and they work out the engineering and then they make it and then they come to Schiller's team and say, Here, here's the new MacBook, figure out a way to sell it. Like Schiller and his team are involved right from the get go in terms of the product development. Like they're involved mm -hmm. at the beginning. Like it's it's not here's the thing, figure out a way to sell it. It's what should the thing be? And then all we have to do is tell people what it is and why. Like right. you said, and why. Right. And and <laughs> I mean that that's it's typified by this section where they spent like three, four minutes talking about keyboard switches, right? Yeah. Like you tell any other marketing head, hey, we changed the keyboard switches in this. It took us like two years to research it and, and build the, or however long, and research it and build these keyboard switches. They're like, yeah, okay, I'll I'll see if I can sneak it in, <laughs> you know? But no, he knows why. He knows the amount of effort they spent on it, and he knows why it's so important. And he also knows that when Apple announces something like this, it actually, he has to impress upon people that they really really thought about it they made, and there's no other way than made, just to say we really thought hard about it they made like a hollywood caliber slow slow-mo <laughs> video showing how the keys work in action it's yeah it was, it, it, i'm i guarantee you they shot that with a phantom right with one of those <laughs> yeah like twenty thousand frames per second yeah. you know cameras yeah i definitely think they might have um uh what do you think about the MacBook? I mean, overall impressions is pretty good. You know, I, and I dinked around with it at the event a little bit afterwards. But I think that on stage, when I was watching it, I started mentally tallying the amount of major inventions that went into the one device. Because usually with Apple, there there will be a lot of refinements and a lot of iterative changes that they make to something. And of course, each one of those involves experimentation, maybe invention and that kind of thing. But the MacBook, especially this time around, there were there were like five major inventions that, you know, things that had to be created, not just bought and or licensed and applied but actually created to make this thing work all right well let's, you know, let's you get, list them okay okay so you've got the batteries right, right. the change in batteries um will just do a overview so change in batteries touchpad uh the uh screen right which is a change in the screen the keyboard switches um and then the well, I guess USB-C is really under adoption, right? Because they're adopting a standard. Well, here's the um, thing about that, though. I have heard, I can't, you know, can't say who, but let's call them informed little birdies, that USB-C is an Apple invention and that hmm. they gave it to the standard bodies. <laughs> and That wouldn't surprise me too much. That the politics of such is that they can't really say that. They, they're not going to come out in public and say that, but that they did. It is an Apple invention yeah. and they do, they want it to become a standard. You know, that's like the difference, like, and I, you know, we can get into this. It's a good question. We should definitely come back to is, are they going to use USB-C instead of lightning on iOS devices or something? But I feel like the difference is there are certain devices and contexts where they want to have a proprietary port. And there are other contexts where they want to have an industry standard port. You know, they want your MacBook to be able to connect to third party displays. Sure, they want you to buy an Apple display, but they know that, you know, that it, 
that it has to be able to support third-party displays. They want you to be able to plug in a microphone, you know, for podcasting into your MacBook. Um, and they're not going to make microphones, right? So they want it to mm -hmm. be an open port. And so, you know, but they also want it to be obviously thin and they also want it to be, uh, upside downable. I don't know what you would call yeah, it. Yeah. Reversible, reversible, I guess. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so they, you know, what I've heard is that it's pretty, you know, it's an Apple invention that was sort of developed coincident, you know, alongside lightning and that they donated, they gave to the standards bodies. So, cause they want it to, you know, they want, Interesting. they want the, they want the industry standard to be thin enough for their devices and they want it to be, uh, reversible. Right. I mean, that makes some sense. I mean, the, the, the one thing that I, that made me sad about it is the apparent death of MagSafe, right? Yeah. As I had, I'm not going to take credit for this. A former Appler told me this, but he said that he felt that the MagSafe was like the, the hallmark Apple invention of the 2000s. Yeah. You know, and th that it was a very Apple thing to do and that, he, <laughs> you know, I mean, you think about the amount of time that they spent patenting that they patented it so hard so hardcore that people couldn't even make anything like it like everybody else's had to be pretty awful in comparison yeah and i think that there's a plus and a minus to that the minus is that i wish all computers had that but they couldn't because apple patented it but the plus is that it worked really well on apple computers you know which is what i primarily use for like laptops and stuff but I'm pretty sad to see that go. I'm going to be honest. I'm kind of nostalgic for the MagSafe already. It's funny, and we, you know, we have to mention that um, the Mark Gurman at Nine to Five Mac. What was it? About six weeks ago, when he came out with the, mm -hmm. you know, here's the next MacBook Air, um, and you know, had they they commissioned an artist to do you know renderings based on what he was told, and it was spot on, nailed it. Yeah, right? really, really close. In, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there was a little the little tiny details wrong, but I almost think it wasn't even, I think it was just like a mistake on the artist's part. For example, the escape key was uh, and the renderings was top right instead of top left, which made no mm. sense at all. Like why, if, if there's room for the key period, why in the world would you move? And I think it was just a mistake on the artist's part. I don't think that like it was a botched part of the thing. I think the artist just wasn't thinking and put the escape key up there. Who, you know, who cares? But in terms of only yeah. having, one USB-C port on the left and a microphone port on the right and no other ports, period, that nailed it. Or, or mm -hmm. not a microphone, uh, uh, headphone jack. Yeah, it's a line in and out, by the way. So it is it, that is audio, an audio in jack mm. as well as a headphone jack. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. And in, in reaction to that, the, the, you know, the, the, the conventional wisdom, the, the general consensus was, well, how can you do that? How, you, how can you get rid of MagSafe? You can't get rid of MagSafe. MagSafe is awesome. And, you know, it doesn't make any... So, therefore, this can't be true. This has to be a mistake. I think, you know, a lot of times you just... You have to realize, like, in the name of progress, Apple's answer is, you know, tough. <laughs> right? Because we spent, we spent millions of dollars developing this, and we're going to kill it just because it's not necessary. And it's always, you know, it's... It, to me, it's a good sign that I don't want to buy this laptop. I mean, let me, I'll just say flat out, I do not want this machine right now. Um, but I like it as a statement as to where things are going. And I definitely can imagine buying a, a laptop 
a, a new MacBook in its image in, you know, next time I buy one in a couple of years. Um, but I'm reminded of every time Apple has dropped something like this, you know, like with the original iMac dropping everything except USB. And people said, well, it's not going to work with any of my existing peripherals. None of my peripherals will work. None of my mice or keyboards or hard drives are going to work. And the answer is tough, you know. And when <laughs> right. they drop the optical, <laughs> when they drop the optical drive with the first MacBook Air, and I think that's the the real comparison is to the first MacBook Air. People are like, well, it's not going to play any DVDs. It's not. How am I going to install the OS? All OS updates come on uh, DVDs, and the answer was mm -hmm. tough. You know, we'll figure yeah. it out. Yeah. Yeah, we'll figure it out at some point. It's I joked on Twitter that it's like uh, you know they're they're the Apple outrage is the outrage cycle is essentially Apple predicts the future, executes it a, a little bit. I, you could even use the phrase a little bit too early, right? Or a little bit earlier than the rest of the industry is really what that means. And then everybody gets pissed, and then eventually it's the standard. And I think that uh, Jason Snell wrote a review of the original MacBook. He, he linked it on Twitter today. I was talking uh, with Steven Sanofsky on Twitter about um, the the whole original MacBook review that Jason wrote. And Jason chimed in and, and uh, he had referred to it, I guess, a, a couple weeks ago. But it was essentially the same thing. It's like, man, this is, you know, a big change and it's, it, there's a, a lot of compromises and et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, it's all over again. It's the same concept. Um, and, and yet here we are with our airs going, oh, how I could I ever live without my air? Right. My air is just fine. You know? So, well, I remember too, when German's report first came out with this and most people are like, well, there's no way they're going to drop MagSafe because MagSafe is awesome and useful. And then there were others, the people who were, ends up were right, who said, well, uh, iPad doesn't have MagSafe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I don't. I don't buy that though. I, that that to me is a straw man because the iPad is not used anywhere near like an, a, a laptop is used. You know, some people are already are already telling me, you know, I I have a, would have a really t hard time buying this laptop because I have small children. You know, and they run by my desk yep. and kick the kick the wire and everything. Yep. And I totally I agree with that. And not only that, remember this thing is light. Yep. It's super light. So if you kick that cord and there's any resistance, it's going to go flying. Yep. And yeah, there's no moving parts anymore, so theoretically speaking, it's going to be better off than a hard drive, but still, that's that, that kind of sucks. And I wish that they would have found a way to maybe integrate MagSafe into their USB-C. In other words, there's a general USB-C, you can plug a USB-C cable into this without the MagSafe, but ours has this really cool, you know, polarized magnet that auto-centers and clicks in. Yeah, you my know? thought was maybe they would put it on the adapter. You know that the wall. You know the thing that you plug in the oh, wall. Oh, yeah. But they did. They didn't. Uh -huh. You know, it's not. It mm -hmm. is. You know, as far as I can tell, it is the case now that it's back to where we were. Where if somebody kicks your table, kicks your cable, mm -hmm. trips over your table, cable while it's connected, your your the MacBook is going to go. Right. So that is. Yeah, I don't know. Apple Care Plus, I guess. <laughs> I guess you know. I guess you know. I do think. I honestly think that that's a. Uh, probably more than anything. I mean, there's a performance angle too, where clearly performance-wise, this is not a MacBook Pro. I mean, so if you're doing serious uh, performance, you know, heavy stuff, compiling stuff with Xcode or something, or doing, you know, video editing or anything that might strain your, your computer, um, no, you probably still want a MacBook Pro. But in terms of, right. it, it, clearly this is positioned more against the Airs than the Pros. Not price-wise, but for in sure, terms of sure. you know use case scenario. I would say yeah. the number one, which one should you get? 
question is how often do you use your laptop while it's plugged in? Wow. You know, I, cause I do think, I think the comparison to an iPad is apt. I think that's why they've done it. It's, oh, oh, I see what you're saying with that. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I get it. Their answer to why isn't there a MagSafe on this? And I'm not putting words in their mouth, but the general answer would seem to me is you don't plug this thing in. Right. Right. You don't use it plugged in. So let's right. say you're a college right. student and you're, you don't even take your adapter with you. You keep it in your dorm room and you, in the morning, you leave your dorm room with a fully charged mm. MacBook Air and you don't plug it in again until you come back from classes at the end of the afternoon. It doesn't matter. Right. right. I think there's a right. lot of people who use them in that context. I know in our context, though, like the, you know, with the MacBook Air as the sort of default uh, reporter's laptop. I mean, I mean, it's not even sort of. I mean, you, it's infamous now. No, it is. Yeah, because even, <laughs> yeah, you know, is. people even take pictures at like Microsoft events and you take a look at the press and it's all these Apple logos lit up. Um, it's, but they're, you know, uh, we need plugs though, because we're using them so right. so much. You know, we are yeah. You're using the the wireless network, which is typically crushed, and so it's harder for the radio. The radio is working harder. I, I will say this though, battery wise, I can tell you when it changed for me. This latest, uh, the latest MacBook that I have is a 2013 model, and that MacBook changed everything for me. The Air. Uh, as far as battery goes, I don't really plug in or worry about plugs at events anymore. Yeah. As I remember, I was covering WWDC in 2012, or maybe 2013, I can't remember. But anyhow, it was like a 2011 MacBook, right? And I knew for a fact that that thing was not going to last all the way through. And um, I was covering it at a time when I wasn't in invited to any Apple events. So I just got in line with everybody else and you know, covered it from the crowd, from way back in the crowd or whatever, and did a whole live blog thing. And my battery ran out with about 10 minutes left. It was the, it was the one where they were doing maps. Um, it was the one where they were introducing Apple Maps. And my battery ran out right before he started introducing Apple Maps. <laughs> and so I had to blog the rest of it from my phone. Gotcha. I mean, it was essentially a nightmare scenario. It was right? a WW but I WWDC, right? Yeah. It was a, a forestall oh, yeah. introduction. Exactly. Yeah. And so it, my battery just went boop, and I knew it was going, obviously. And there was no plugs because they only provide plugs for the reporters in their special you know, section up front. And so they don't provide plugs for anybody else because they're supposed to be sitting there watching and maybe tweeting. I, I've never gotten whatever. a plug. I, I, yeah. That's news to me that there's plugs up front. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there are plugs up there. you got to fight for them. Everybody, everybody jostles for them. Um, but yeah, I, I remember getting the new one and – from that point on, I have no longer worried about it. And that's an, as you mentioned, that's an intense scenario, right? Um, you know, hardcore wireless network, you're posting pictures, you're downloading stuff, you may be even tethering, and so your phone is charging off of your laptop, you know, all of this stuff. And never, never have I had a problem, yeah. you know. I, I think that it's, it was a significant difference. So that means with this new one, you know, we're taking a step back a little bit uh, power wise, but battery wise, I think we actually may be in the same ballpark. Yeah. So it may be one of those scenarios where you can get through events and things and your day even without having to plug yeah, it in. You, maybe I, that's I, the philosophy. I'm with you there. Like I, I, my, my laptop for years was a March 2011 11-inch Air. And I've said this on the show many times. It was the last mm -hmm. Air before the 11-inch got the light-up keyboard. So I had a, the, the last 11-inch Air that had a not-lit-up keyboard. Uh, and it was great. It was, you know, so light and portable. But, you know... It, 
the battery life was sort of a struggle on days like a WWD. And I don't even, I don't even use it during the keynotes. I don't even do live blogging during the keynotes, but just, you know, uh, trying to follow along with the news, read all the stuff after the event. And like you said, I think that the fact that the, the cellular and Wi-Fi networks are always, um, you know, under an avalanche makes the antenna struggle. Um, but the big thing for me was always to get through a day like that, I would turn the brightness all the way down as low as I could <laughs> still read it. Um, right. It was the display. Yeah, and you're craning towards the screen. <laughs> yeah, and so last year, yeah. late in the year, I bought, sadly, now one generation behind the 13-inch MacBook Pro instead of an Air because mm -hmm. I was sick of the I, – I, I don't care about the weight. I just wanted a better machine. Uh, and I have to say, I'm with you, the battery life now, I've – I don't know that I've ever even gone into the red. I don't think I've even gone to 20%. Mm -hmm. It's easy to go yeah, through. Yeah, very, that. very rarely. I mean, the only time it happens is because I think I overestimate how how um, far I can take it. You know, I I'll, won't charge it for two or three days or something like that. I'll be like, oh, it's low. Uh, but yeah, very, very rarely do I ever run up against it anymore. I think they, they finally crossed that threshold. Yeah. And it, not, it's not sad, but the... This, the funny thing about this is that we all complain about battery life until it's good enough, and then it, everybody s just stops talking about it. So you never really know when that threshold was crossed. You kind of have to think back, like, when did I stop complaining? You know? Yeah. And I think that that's, that's – we crossed that Rubicon with this, like, 2013 era, I think. Yeah, and one of the things about the new MacBook that really stood out to me was when Schiller said that with the new screen technology that it's a 30% reduction in power draw for the same brightness level. Um, that's huge. That's a huge step up. And like I said, the number one thing that I used to do first thing I did to, if I knew I was going to have a stressful day on the battery was turn the brightness down. You know, the screen is mm -hmm. still, and it's, you know, it's true for phones. It's true for everything. Screens are huge power draws and going retina only, you know, across the board only makes it worse because you know, it's it's not just the dimensions, the size; it's the number of pixels. Um, sure. So a thirty percent reduction in power draw for the display to me, like you said, and listing your five, I think your five inventions are all spot on. It's essential. There's no way they could do this MacBook without that, because right. it would only be because you're, you're talking about six hours of battery life, and that's that's like a yes. spec from ten years ago. You know, you can't yeah. do six hours of battery life. And I think it – I mean, I don't know if it is, but it seems like it's IGZO to me, and I think that's where they got their reduction. I, I, I haven't done any research into whether it is or not, so please don't kill me if it's not, but I think that it, it might be uh, an IGZO display, which obviously the biggest pro to those is uh, battery life. And the fact that they had to do all of this really, really fancy dancing with the battery and the size of the logic board to fit more battery and et cetera, et cetera, and then get a screen with 30% less battery says a lot about the crappy nature of battery technology yeah. as it stands right now. So they, they're they still I, – I like to call it like their, their stop gaps, right? Like so they – Increase in efficiency of a processor, increase in power efficiency of the screen, uh, massive amount more battery inside due to the smaller logic board and this fancy layering technology. All of that is just compensating for the fact that the physical limitations of battery chemistry are – everybody's running up against them, yep. Apple included. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. It looked to me like the new logic board was about the size of an iPhone. This is crazy. Yeah, I actually saw an article today. Somebody did some math. 
uh, I can't remember where it was, Digitimes or something, but and, you know, somebody did a, did the math on the size of the logic board is actually smaller surface area wise than a Raspberry Pi, like the original <laughs> Raspberry Pi. That's crazy. Which like, I thought was interesting. It'll be <laughs> it'll be interesting to see whether this is something that competition can copy or not. You know, in terms of. Uh, uh, you know, and I've been meaning to write an article that would I get under the working headline Apple Semiconductor. You know that it, <laughs> that it, 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 as a consumer you don't need to worry about it, but as someone who follows the industry, you really have to look at Apple now as one of the leading semiconductor companies, if not the leading semiconductor company in the world. You know, right there with Intel, Qualcomm, Samsung, whoever else. You know, and I and mostly though that's been in the context of iOS devices and the watch, sure. right? With the S one, where you've got a five caliber performance supposedly on this tiny thing on your wrist, and with the um, you know the A series systems on a chip for the iOS devices. But now I that's one of the things that struck me about this device is maybe i don't know enough about the industry but maybe this logic board reduction is something that is every bit as cutting edge uh engineering wise as the ios systems on a chip yeah i don't know anything i mean not anything but i don't know enough about it either to make that judgment so i don't want to blow it out of proportion right. or anything but it seems i mean that's a pretty distinct if you've ever seen a logic board in another macbook it's you know it's double the size i mean it's pretty big so they're they have a uh, almost double the size so they have a uh, they put a lot of effort into increasing the density of that board uh, in order to fit more battery in there. And it very well could be something really, really fancy they did there. Yeah. Uh, one of the little things I noticed, and I haven't seen a lot of people talking about it, but I'm curious about it, really curious. And uh, I know you were very, very kind to me and you were welcoming my uh, questions. I, I texted you questions if you could ask people, you know, Apple reps. Uh, yeah, it's not like I was busy or anything live blogging, John. It's no problem. <laughs> I really, I plan to. <laughs> It's always the case, though, even when I'm at the event, always, inevitably, the moment I step foot past the threshold where I could go back and ask another question, always uh -huh. come up with my best question. <laughs> and, sure. And that was the exactly. case, too. It was like, I don't know, like two hours after the event was over, it popped into my head. Why did they put the word MacBook on the front of the glass of the display again? <laughs> that is actually a really good question. I know. I love that. <laughs> Why didn't you ask me that earlier when I could I, ask them? <laughs> I love that my new, you know, this MacBook Pro doesn't say anything mm -hmm. like an iPhone, like the way that your iPhone does not say iPhone in front of it. I don't right. understand why they put the word MacBook there. I wish I could ask. <laughs> I actually didn't even, <laughs> I didn't even think about that until now. It's, it seems kind of gauche, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it seems, you know. Like, of course it's a MacBook. I know what I'm using. Exactly. And I think that that's why they never had it on the front of the iPhone, right? Right. And um, I, I early on, I made fun of other phones, um, like, you know, the Motorola Droid Max Razor or whatever, for, like, pasting the logo several times on the front and back of the phone. Because it's like, yeah, we got it. We bought it. Like, we're, we are, you already got our money. Why are you... I've always Why are you thought, screaming it in my face I've every always, day? I've always know? thought it was so curious that all the things that competitors copy about and like let's take samsung in particular all the ways that samsung has copied apple designs one thing they could copy and could not be held accountable for it would be to copy the logoless front face and they right. can't bring themselves to do it 
They have to print. They they're compelled to print the ugly Samsung logo on every phone they make. Even though if they wanted to, clearly you can't copyright not putting a logo on the front face. So they could make a plain black yeah. or plain white face that would look more like an iPhone, but they can't bring themselves to do it. I, I would just imagine like a design review meeting where some designer, you know, in their in their laboratory has gone through and said, "Oh man, this is a great." piece of apple design here not putting it on the front and they remove it and everything and at the very last second before it goes to production some exec walks by and says why is there no samsung logo on the front of this Get, put, please put a samsung logo on the front of this and then the engineer just slumps in defeat and make it big <laughs> yeah make it big make it reflective make it metallic because right. they are always metallic like ref- it, like you look at the front of the phone and you move it back and forth and it shines in your eyes you're like really come on now but yeah i don't know i don't know why it's on there um I don't. And you notice, I don't know if you noticed this or, or took note of it, but the, the logo is no longer backlit, right? So it's polished logo on the back that. of the MacBook. I thought about that yeah. when I said, I thought about that just when I said a few minutes ago that like in a, at a Microsoft event, you look and you see all these lit up Apple logos. Um, mm. Yeah, I think it's probably just a thinness issue. I th- sure. Right? I think yeah. that it there's just, they, you know. Maybe even power. Yeah, right? maybe. Yeah. But yeah, thinness, I think, is probably it. I mean, that thing is really really thin like yeah. when you look at it in person it's i mean pictures always make things look thicker like the the watch but we'll talk about that but the 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 lid is really really thin and they had to layer that screen precisely to get it in there uh, yeah i just think it's a thickness thing yeah the other thing it's kind of sad but a little bit but i'm not surprised thickness. i've sort of been thinking that they were heading that direction ever ever since the ipad shipped without a light up logo ever since i've always thought <laughs> it's you know it's got to be coming um other thing I noticed uh, is that the keyboard uses the San Francisco as the keycap font instead of vague rounded, which they've been using. Oh for yeah, a long I saw time. you tweet that. I'm not. I'm not a huge. I'm a semi font nerd, but I'm not a huge one, so I didn't notice that. I've never really cared for vague rounded as the keycap font, mm. so I'm, I'm delighted by that change. Now, <laughs> what was it that you didn't like about it? Out of curiosity, it looks okay. The capital letters look okay to me, but they don't look great. But the lowercase ones mm-hmm. to me are just gross. Like shift, you know, the, everything's written in lowercase tab, caps lock, shift, oh, control. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's just like a, it looks childlike to me. It's, a, to me, it's a mm-hmm. childlike, childish font. It does, just doesn't look gotcha. serious enough. Mm-hmm. So you like, you think San Francisco is a little stronger? Oh, I definitely more, think so. And older, I think yeah. it's, I think it's really, uh, to me, the whole reason they're using it on a watch is that it looks to me like a hardware font it looks like the type of typeface you would use to stamp you know the the stuff on the back of a watch case which is exactly the font they're using to stamp you know stainless steel 42 millimeters yeah. etc on the back it looks like a hardware font it looks like something that you would stamp in the metal and so it looks good to me i haven't seen it in person obviously but it looks to me like a natural fit for hardware like the keycaps on a keyboard Interesting. Just has a yeah. certain it 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 has a certain seriousness to it. Yeah. I, <laughs> one thing about the the watch stuff, a lot of the like the companion app and the the fonts on the watch face, there's like a mixture of stuff they're using, and sometimes the mixture is really awkward. Like the companion app has like two or three different fonts on the the pairing screen. It's really weird. Hmm. I don't know. It's it seems like an unusual 
misstep or or decision anyway and it may just be a visibility thing or a differentiation thing like this is that this is actionable this is not actionable uh but it seems like an odd choice to use fonts for that rather than stroke thickness or you know an, an outline or something like yeah. that but maybe they're just handicapped by their decisions their design decisions and they have to kind of make compromises in terms of, of differentiation between buttons and not um Let's take a break. You have anything more on the, on the MacBook before we take a break? Uh, no, not really. I mean, the batteries. I, I don't think that necessarily is like a a world shattering invention, but I think it's a, a methodology that will be copied if it can be. Yeah. You know, IP wise. I guess I, because the last the last thing I guess we should talk about, and I've been asked this, so I guess I should answer it. Is why didn't why isn't this called the MacBook Air? And I think it's simply because it's too expensive. That MacBook Air is all once Mac, you know, they anything that's called MacBook Air has to be at the price points the MacBook Air is already at. And they're, you know, so that's why they've kept it. That's why they've added it to the product lineup instead of replacing anything. Um, but then clearly, as you know, within a year or two years, it this will replace the MacBook Airs in the lineup as the price comes down. Once they can make one of these for, you know, eight ninety nine or nine ninety nine, the MacBook Airs will just go away. Yep, absolutely. I think it's just a stake in the ground reserving that MacBook name for this uh, design of MacBook. Yeah, and I think the other angle, too, is in terms of uh, uh, a statement about the future that when the Air debuted, being so thin and light was remarkable and exceptional. And I think Apple is saying now, of course, it's going to be this crazy thin and light. That's the default. This it it doesn't mm-hmm. it doesn't even need to be called out in the name. This is just what a MacBook is and should be. Right, right. Uh, all right. Let me thank our next sponsor, and it is our good friends at Fracture. You know Fracture; they're the company. You send them photos, and they print them directly on glass. It's not a piece of paper that's behind glass mounted in a frame. They take the glass. I don't know how they do it. It, Nobody else does it. It's crazy. They take the glass, they print your photo right on it. It is crazy. It's exactly like the way that on a, on an LCD, like with the Apple stuff where when it's laminated to the glass, it looks like the pixels are right there on the surface. That's exactly what images printed by fracture looks like. Um, they have all sorts of sizes, everything from little small desktop type sizes to really big things that you could hang on a wall. Um, and the quality is just amazing. It is so great and it looks amazing. You're going to get questions because you can just mount it right on your wall then with no frame around it, just a piece of glass printed edge to edge with your pictures. Uh, really high quality. Really great service. It comes in the most clever packaging that you could imagine, where it's the the actual thing that they ship it to you in itself is can be used to um, uh, prop it up on your desk. It's a little what would you call that a uh, like an easel. It comes with the stuff that you need behind it if you want to mount it on a wall. Uh, really, really clever packaging. Really high quality and every size imaginable. Uh, Free shipping on orders over a hundred bucks, uh, and they have a code just for listeners of the show. Uh, use this code when you order. The code is it's a secret, so I'm going to whisper it. Uh, Daring fireball, all one word, and you'll save fifteen percent on anything you order, whether it's one picture or a bunch. 
you'll save 15%, which is a great discount by using the code DARINGFIREBALL. So where do you go? Where's their website? How do you see this in action? Go to FractureMe.com, F-R-A-C-T-U-R-E-M-E.com. And remember that code DARINGFIREBALL and you'll save 15%. My thanks to them. Uh, so now we finally come to the watch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like we've been resisting talking about right. it, essentially. But <laughs> yeah, it's interesting what they chose to say additionally uh, that they hadn't said before. Um, I mean, the Apple Pay was obviously a good tie-in. They mentioned Apple Pay. I mean, I guess let's start at the top of the announcement, right? So they, they bring out um, you know, Tim comes out and introduces. He introduced um, Kevin, right? Uh, so he, he, Christy Turlington. He was talked first. a bit. Oh no, that's right. You're right. Christy Turlington was first. Yeah, that's an interesting one. What did you think of that? I thought it was good. I saw that there was definitely some backlash where people were like uh, cynically saying, you know, why go to, you know, why, why, more or less accusing Apple of exploiting, you know, Africa in the name of selling. Uh-huh. Uh, thousand dollar watches i completely disagree i think that there was no i think it was a total natural that they were going to bring out somebody famous i I mean not that they had to but it sounds you know i'm sure if they wasn't her in africa it would have been somebody else here like in some alternate universe there's some other celebrity or athlete let's say who they brought out here and show them training and exercising here in the united states and it's every bit as much about selling watches as it would as what they did, except that in this world where they brought her out and raised attention to her charity, uh, I can't help but think that her, that charity has made more money this week than they would have made if Apple didn't feature them, <laughs> right? So in this world where Apple did this and shared some of their attention with this charity, that charity has raised more money and the health and well-being of uh, women in Africa is better than it would have been otherwise. So I don't see, I don't see how you can be, how you can complain about that. Right. I mean, I think that there's an, there is a definite contrast, sharp contrast between wearing, say a thousand dollar watch. Cause I think she was using like the steel one. Yeah. It was not gold. Uh, and right. It wasn't, <laughs> was it, that would have been the worst wouldn't it? Yeah. She's running through Africa with a $17,000 watch. Um, so, I mean, I think there was definitely a contrast, right? But honestly, her running shoes were probably several hundred dollars, right? And anybody that goes to Africa on vacation to a wildlife preserve, which who, their money, when they pay that money, part of it goes to funding that wildlife preserve, you know, when they go visit right. those things. Like anybody that goes there and is doing that thing, there's always going to be a sharp contrast between, say, the watch or sunglasses or expensive clothing that they're wearing and the the natural state of – the unfortunate natural state of many of the people, you know, living in Africa who need assistance or aid or whatever. So there's always going to be a contrast. It's always going to be a minefield, right? So I get it that people – drew them they, they were drawn to that dichotomy and i 100 percent think that it's a valid point but i think that your point in terms of they brought out a person on stage who wasn't just a face who literally was a mom who started a foundation based on you know uh, maternal wellness and did all that stuff uh i mean that's 
that's fantastic. Like, why not? You know, they could have had an athlete. They could have had just somebody who makes millions of dollars and does nothing, right? And I think that that was a good choice for them, regardless of whatever blowback they may take, you know, because of the visual. Right. Uh, I think that it was good. I yeah. think it's almost and, and it's almost like yeah. a tacit acknowledgement that yes, there is you know, the 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 income levels around the world are wildly disparate. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's they're not hiding behind it. I mean, it's it's a tacit acknowledgement. So I, I have mm-hmm. to say I disagree with anybody who criticizes them for that. I think it's uh, it was only a good thing for the charity, and I think it's a great cause. Yeah. And I saw somebody tweeting because there were plenty of people like, why Chrisley Turlington? Who cares? Blah, 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 you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I saw somebody tweet on uh, Twitter, and I can't remember who it is, so forgive me. But they were like, yeah, you can complain about Chrisley Turlington when you have started a foundation which has raised, you know, X amount of dollars for, for these things. Like, seriously, you know, they could have had anybody on there, any any loser who wanted to wear an Apple Watch and come on stage or, or film a promo. And instead, they had somebody who'd really done real good. Right. And I think that you got to acknowledge that. Yeah, it, so, you know, could have been yeah. you know Peyton Manning or something. Not you know, not even a loser. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know. No, not a loser. I should say loser in like a flippant terms. But yeah, they could have had somebody who was just. <laughs> I just realized <laughs> that I, I really didn't mean to say that. I like Peyton Manning. I didn't mean it. Oh, but man. I, you know, like that was brutal. But I, I don't know. Or you know, like uh, some athlete who was injured last year and you know used Apple Watch to you know uh, condition themselves yeah. coming back from a knee injury or something. I don't. know. It could have been anything. They could have had. They could have had Pablo Sandoval out there. <laughs> no, oh, this is how I lost my weight again. <laughs> I'm sorry, Pablo. I apologize. Um, but yeah, I think that it's it's an interesting. It was an interesting choice, and in the end, I think it was a, a better choice than it could have been in a lot of ways. I so I, I thought there was I, an I interesting moment up front where when Tim was talking about um, digital touch. And the, as a communication feature with the doodles and the taps and the heartbeat. And he said, I hope somebody send me one of those, which was, <laughs> I thought, oddly personal, you know, like, uh, you know, it seemed as though he was, you know, uh, like saying, uh, I, I don't know. I'm not quite sure how to interpret that. You remember that? Tim Cook looking for yeah, love. Looking for love. I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I think it was. I mean, I think it was a joke. Yeah. And it fell firmly in the dad joke range, right? Which is what you usually get on Apple Stages. Right. And I thought that was, you know, a good nod to that. Um, yeah, it was an interesting one. I remember. I remember that. That, that. that is interesting. I don't know. I don't want to read too much into no. it, but I think it was just a, it was a good joke. Yeah, I don't think there's you know? too much to read yeah. into it. But I do, th- but I think that, I do think that's an ahead. important part of the watch, though. I, I think it's mm. it, very, very, uh, I, I'm going to say downright essential to its success. I really do think so. I think if right. those things don't take off and people don't use them, they might be in trouble. Yeah. I, I think that, uh, you know, I wrote I wrote the thing about the Apple Watch saving time, which I, yeah. I genuinely believe it's going to save a lot of time. Um, but I, I acknowledge that spending $300 or $500 or whatever to save time seems silly, but I think it may actually translate to improved human relationships. Right, so if I spend less time looking at my phone and spend more time looking at my wife and kid, I'm gonna feel good about that, and I'm gonna feel happy because you you can't you can't know uh, until you get. I think this may come with age, or it may come with if you get really busy at work, or you get really busy in in your career or anything like that. You you don't know the impact that 
extra time has, you know, time with your family, time away from that has until you lose it or don't have it. And then when you don't have it, you would do anything to get it back. And I think that that is going to be a very powerful thing. But I think along with that, that interpersonal relationship, you know, with the taps and the constant communication, the ability to literally reach out and, and touch your watch which then figuratively touches the other person, which then literally touches the other person, right? I think that that's an interesting translation, and it'll be it'll be neat to see how that develops over time. But it's we're not going to be able to tell until it, it, people actually do it. So they could say it all they want, but we have to see whether or not that actually takes off. Yeah, I talked about it on um, the Debug podcast with Guy English and Renee Ritchie and... Uh, the other special guest was John Edwards, who's a, a watchmaker and app developer. He's got apps that are like meant for people who are into watches. Like you can, you know, measure the the accuracy of your mechanical watch with his apps. And he's really, really smart guy. Knows a lot about the the traditional watch world. But on that show, I was talking about a thing that um, it was actually my friend Adam Lisagor, you know, uh, Lonely Sandwich on Twitter. Uh, the sandwich video guy, but we talked about this at the Singleton conference back in October, and he really opened my mind about this. He was, you know, his thing was that he thinks everybody is just overlooking that Apple has invented the first ever way to touch someone you're intimate with without being within arm's distance of them. And in fact, you can be, you know, around the world. And that's really interesting. Maybe it'll turn out to be nothing. I don't know. But I think that there's an enormous amount of potential there, you know, and I know that Apple keeps using the words intimate and personal, our most personal device ever. And, you know, it could just be marketing spin, but I, I don't know. I honestly think, you know, and like I said earlier, I think Apple's product marketing usually is really about the development of the product. And then the advertising is just telling you what they honestly think about it. And so, you know, I think there's a scenario where that's truly what they believe, that this is intimate and that, you know, being able to send your heartbeat to someone you have uh, a crush on, you know, or, you know, someone you've been married to for 10, 15 years or whatever, or your kid uh, is profound. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to, to to brush this aside as a gimmick the most intimate thing that i have remotely with like my wife for instance is our iMessage stream right like that is our that's our communication method we don't talk on the phone a whole lot unless we have something explicit to say or we're driving you know in in our day-to-day like a picture of my daughter or a picture of where i am so she just knows i'm safe and where i am because i travel a lot for work that our iMessage stream is our intimate communication window. And I I have an Android phone and I use that too, but she doesn't. So that doesn't become a conduit for us. Although I'd assume it's very similar for an Android user, you know, their text message inbox with their significant other uh, would be one of their most intimate streams of communication back and forth. But text messaging has this problem with emotional context. It's very difficult to, to exhibit, or transmit emotional context in text messaging. Um, it's a constant problem, right? And you that's why kind of emoji was kind of took off and, and still obviously is still on the rise. I think people are very, very fond of it. But I think that that 
translating that into something that's tactile and visual on your wrist is a would be a very very powerful thing and i'm i'm anxious to see how that develops yeah so here's like a scenario i was thinking of so um like my son desperately wants an apple watch very very much so it's a, you know high expectation that he's going to get one for christmas um uh like imagine me picking him up from school it's three o'clock and you know uh, i just want to let him know hey i'm here you know so one tap to communication, one tap to pick his thing, and then I give the phone a force tap. So click the button, one tap on the screen, one force touch, and then all of a sudden he gets a tap on his wrist and looks down, and it just shows that I sent a, you know, my name is there, and it just shows that I sent him a tap. And then he'll just know that it's like me saying, hey, I'm here. Like, I don't have to say I'm here. I don't have to send him any words. Just tap. Here I am. I'm out back, Right. Like and the context says the rest. Yeah, the context says the rest because he's on his way out the door, you know, at three three oh one after school's over. Like he'll get it. You know, that's pretty interesting yep. to me. Yeah, and I, I um, <laughs> this is essentially what the guys at Yo were trying to sell. People I on, said that on right? Twitter. It's the context right. of the Yo. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, oh, oh, you did. Okay, maybe that's what I read. But yeah, they. That it is right. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah, and I and so everybody made fun of Yo. You know that, right? right. Like it became a big I, funny I thing because it's like, what is right. it? But but I totally see it that way, you know. And I feel like sure. by being physical instead of verbal, instead of a stream of ASCII characters that display on a screen that you read, by being physical, it could be that could be super important. I I try not to to just dismiss stuff like that like yo and like this tap thing out of hand like i'll make jokes about yo just like anybody else or whatever because i think it's it's funny especially when they're given millions of dollars before having proven that it actually has traction or anything um but i think that it's there's the simpler something is the easier it is to make jokes and fun about it you know and yet those are usually the things that have the potential to be the most powerful because of their simplicity right so yeah. You know, yo. It's nonverbal communication can be so important, but it's always been about being in proximity to each other, right? Like, so, like, uh, just another stupid example. Now, this one I don't know is replaceable by the watch, but it's a, like, imagine you're at a family dinner, it's Thanksgiving or something like that, and you're at the grandparents' house, and it's long and it's boring, and people are talking about boring stuff. And if you're sitting next to your kid, you can just, and you know that they're bored, just, give their leg a little squeeze and then they look at you and you just give them a look like, I know, Hey, thanks. Thanks for putting up, you know, you can just shoot a look like, Hey, thanks for putting up with this. I know this is boring. Uh, and you don't have to say anything. Right. And it's like nonverbal communication. You can do things so that are so interesting and truth be told that the word applies. It's intimate. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious how it will play out. I do think I think people important. did associate the oh yeah go ahead well I, and I just think the other angle that's important is that it only works if everybody involved has an Apple watch <laughs> yeah yeah that's true I mean obviously that's important for Apple um, it's important for them to convince you that the two-way aspect of it is important because that means that you know, you're you're gonna get. It's not just the most techie person in the family will own one, because then half the stuff that they that is available to them won't work, right? right? You you have to have. It's sort of a family device that everybody has one. Um, 
So they, they have a potential to sell a lot of these things, I think. Yeah, totally. Um, what did you think of Kevin Lynch? So I thought he did pretty well. I thought he was pretty good up there. He seemed much more comfortable than he was last time, sort of owning his position now and and saying, you know, I'm okay being here. I have things to say, and uh, you know, I'm comfortable in in my knowledge of them. That's the way it seemed to come across. But I liked it. I thought he did a good job. I thought he was personable. He was comfortable. Uh, he demonstrated stuff fairly well. Um, yeah, it was good. I think you know we're all. It, it, you know, we're just being honest. It, you know, we're harsh critics of the presenters at Apple events because the bar is so high. And I think it was remarkable how much better he did. I don't think he did terribly in September, but it was awkward at times. And he seemed a little, just a little unpolished. And I thought it was remarkable how much better he did having only done one of them before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was, he was very very nervous last time you could tell and he definitely overcame that uh, this time right. around i thought it was he stepped up yeah. you know because this is uh, the apple events the super bowl of tech events so i think he really stepped yeah. up and uh, craig federighi comes to mind craig federighi when he rejoined apple mm. and his first onstage appearance was uh forget when it was but i know it was the back to the mac event where they first announced hey here's a whole bunch of things that we've been doing on ios that we're going to bring to the mac in the next version and his, mm -hmm. his hands were literally shaking. Like he had trouble going through the demo because his hand on the mouse was shaking right. and he wasn't able to click. And it was almost like awkward to watch. And now he's one of the best presenters they have. And in fact, on Twitter, a bunch yeah. of people, uh, you know, were arguing, you know, were arguing that he's the best, that he's even better than, you know, Schiller or Tim Cook, that he's the best that they have. And it only, you know, was only mm -hmm. like two or three events in. Yeah, I, I agree that he is one of their best. He has a presence. He comes on stage now, and he seems like he's having fun. Um, he really uh, he, he's he works the room. Yeah, you know, and I think that that is a it's a different. It's actually a different, very different than Schiller's measured take or Tim's like passion yeah. thing that he's got. Yeah. You know, it, it's very much like, hey, we're all here. We got some really cool stuff. We think you'll love to see it. You know, let's just have some fun up here. Sort of, Look at my hair, you know? he's <laughs> He comes across like, uh, to me, like Bob Saget on the old Full House show. Like he's just, oh, right. he just owns the dad joke right. nature of it, you know? And which is sure. funny because and Bob and Bob's not like that at all, right? right. Like Bob Saget <laughs> is actually one of the like dirtiest comics. In, <laughs> like I, like anybody who knows anything about like stand up com comedians and like knows that Bob Saget is like just brutally blue mm -hmm. in his usual stuff. So like the idea that he was like playing this G rated dad on a hit show was like just icing on the cake but but that's what right it was almost stunt casting right you know it's just he wasn't extremely well known at the time right but he totally you know he he bought into it though like you know he he totally sold yeah. it. and like federighi's like that like his you know he totally owns the corny jokes that he you know sprinkles throughout his thing he's 
Yeah, and they don't work if you don't, right? right? They don't. They 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 come off as forced or awful or groan worthy, and and people will groan even now, but they'll groan good naturedly because they know he's in on the joke. Yeah, there's and there's I think like a, that's why he comes there's off. There's like well. a meta level to it. It's like two levels deep. Where on the one level he totally tries to sell the joke as hard as he can, but on another level he's also got like a, I know this is corny. Like he's not trying to convince you that this is you know anything but mm-hmm. you know uh, G-rated corporate comedy. You know, he owns and that's it. why when people refer to dad jokes, that's what they're saying. Like your dad knows what he's saying is corny, but he's just like he just wants to talk right. to you, right? <laughs> that's, all, that's all he's doing. He's like trying to initiate a conversation and be like, and, and he knows that you're going to think it's corny, and he's doing it be- almost because of that, right? So that you guys are both in on the joke, yeah. and I think that's that that's what comes across there. Uh, let me take one last break here, and then we'll we'll keep going on Apple Watch. But I want to thank I have one more th- sponsor to thank, and it's our good friends at Squarespace. Now, Squarespace is your all-in-one website building, designing, hosting product. You go to Squarespace and sign up, and boom, you have a website. Uh, the old days, you said, you know, to to get a website started, geez, what did you do? You'd go to a hosting service, and what do you have? You have like a HTML file, like index.html that says like, uh, welcome to my website. And then you have to start from there, and you have to design your website, figure out what it looks like, then figure out the HTML and CSS that would actually make it look like what you want it to look like. And then you have to upload it all, and then you have to figure out some kind of uh content management system, if it's something that you want to update regularly, like a blog or something like that. Uh, And you had to do it all by hand. Squarespace is totally different. It's just a whole level up from that. You go to Squarespace and sign up and you start just by picking templates to choose from. And they have a whole bunch of them, all professionally designed, all of them uh, responsive, so they scale up from everything from a phone to a tablet to a big 30-inch display. Um, and they're configurable, not by using code, but just drag and drop. If you want this thing on the right instead of on the left, you just drag it from the left to the right, and boom, there it is. Uh, and they've it's always been like that. That's what Squarespace has done right from the beginning. But with the newest version, they call it Squarespace 7, and you can go to squarespace.com slash seven spell it out s-e-v-e-n like uh like the movie uh and see all the new stuff um but they've really really taken it to a new level in terms of just how much it's visual and drag and drop and what you see is what you get for web design uh and they handle everything all the hosting and everything too everything is all it's not separate it's all just one thing you go there you build your website and you have a website it's that easy um they have a partnership now. One of the Squarespace 7 features is a partnership with uh, Getty Images. So if you have something where you need to pull in stock photography or illustrations or something like that, that's built into the product now too. Uh, they take care of all the licensing and everything like that. So it's all on the up and up uh, legally and copyright-wise. They have integration now with Google Apps, which is really, really profound for people who use Google Apps for work and stuff like that. Uh, and everything is just beautiful. They have 24-7 support via live chat and email. Uh, and the whole thing, it starts at just 8 bucks a month, which is an unbelievably great deal. Uh, and if you pay for a year in advance, you even get a free domain name registration. Uh, 
commerce, every website comes with free online store. So if you have something you want to sell, if the website you're building is, you know, something about some kind of product you're going to sell, that's just a built-in feature. You don't even have to pay extra for it. It's just something you can turn on and use if that's what you're building a website for. Uh, just can't emphasize enough how just about any kind of website you want to build, you can build with Squarespace. Blog, if you have a podcast you want to host, you can host a podcast. Uh, if you're an artist or a, a designer or something like that, you can use it to create uh, your product portfolio, show off your work. Uh, if you create things and make things, you have something to sell, you can use it to build a store. It's, it's hard to think of something that you couldn't build with Squarespace. So where do you go for more information? Go to squarespace.com slash Gruber, my last name, squarespace.com slash Gruber. That'll let them know you came from the show. Um, and you can get started for free. I think you get a whole month, just sign up and you can try it for free. Um, you're going to keep it afterwards. When you do pay, if you use my code, it's JG, my initials, just use JG as the code, you'll save 10% off your first purchase and show your support for the talk show. So my thanks to Squarespace. Go check them out at squarespace.com slash Gruber. So if there's anything that I was disappointed by in the event, it was that they didn't really show anything new that they hadn't shown before. And I kind of expected that they would except for third party stuff, which they obviously couldn't show at the original. Yeah, I did. I wanted them to, to expose their reasoning a little bit, which they have done in the past. Right. And and I think that a lot of this comes in the form of on stage. It comes in the form of, we think this is going to be great for X and Y. Right. And that is their way of saying, these are the things that we were thinking about when we made it, right? And they don't do it always super explicitly, but it seems like you generally get kind of those nods, right? And it didn't seem like they did a whole lot of that for the watch. Yeah, definitely not. I and I think I I think well I think it shows. I think it it for better or for worse. I'm not willing to say that they're wrong. I'm not passing judgment yet, but it seems to me like their message is starts with the idea that people want the Apple watch and that it's largely about which one do you want and that they've, they don't see the need to explain why you want it. Do you agree? I think that's true. I think they don't see the need, but I also think they're wrong. Hmm. Right. So I think they, they, they feel that if you have an iPhone, this first batch of, of watch users will be people that have an iPhone that want more iPhone-y stuff, right? That want more of that experience or want to have, you know, access to those things. And here's some cool other things you can do with it. And that's enough. And I, and that is okay. And it may work just fine. But I think that they're wrong if they think, and I'm also, remember, I'm projecting motivations on them at this point. But if they think that that's enough, I think they're wrong. I think they actually do need to, or needed to focus a little bit more on use case scenarios because they are going uphill against this this sort of downward pressure of it's more money and it's another thing I've got in my life that may take attention from me. And I obviously, because I wrote that, I feel that it, it may actually give you back time, but I think that there was none of that explicitly said. 
yeah you know, or very little I, of it i didn't mind the the what was the what's the word the uh, the conceit of kevin lynch's demo of let's just run through a typical day in the life of an apple watch i think that was good um you know and a lot of it was third party but what was missing and they've never done is like with the original iphone steve jobs was like here it is and then he showed it and here's the home screen and it was here's what all the apps do i'm not quite sure that he opened every app but he certainly opened all the main ones, right? He opened, you know, he went through Safari. He went through mail. Uh, he went through the phone app and said, you know, we've, you know, we've reinvented the phone and, you know, here's, you know, voicemail sucks here. Now we've done it the right way. It's visual. You get them in a list, like, just like your email and you can see who they're from and play them and delete them in a list. Like, you know, so you're not like an animal anymore sitting there stabbing buttons, right? <laughs> like you forget. I mean, voicemail right. sucks anyway, and everybody, nobody really likes getting phone yeah. calls. But God, voicemail sucked before the iPhone. It was ridiculous. Oh, my God. It was, yeah, it was but so bad. It. And And once you got a few messages deep, it was just horrific. And so, yeah, that on stage, it was such a cool drink of water. Yeah. So, like, maybe, like, you know, your dad and your mom call, you know, one, you know two or three times a week. And a lot of times you have a bunch of voicemails there. But you've got a voicemail from... uh you know, like a doctor appointment or something like that, that's four or five deep now, but you still need it because the doctors that that message is the only thing you have that has the phone number of the office and you need to call them back because you have to move your appointment. So I got sucked before finding that message. Uh, and it's, you know, uh, he showed it though, right? I don't know. I think he went through like calendar. Maybe he didn't go through them all, but it just seemed to me like, and, and at least you could see what they all are. And if he didn't show you the calculator app, you saw the icon on the home screen and you knew, well, duh, it's a calculator. I still think like, to me, it's crazy that like, there's all these apps on the home screen of the watch that they still haven't told us what they do. Like right out of the box. <laughs> yeah, there's a bunch like, of them. Like, uh -huh. forget the App Store. Forget, you know, for, you know, which I do think is important. And it's, you know, it's it key to the success of the thing long term as a platform. But I'm just saying, as an Apple Watch user, you buy it, you bring it home, you put it on your wrist, and there's a bunch of apps on the home screen, and they still haven't explained them. I'm really surprised by that. And disappointed, honestly. Tim Cook did mention it. He said, you know, like, one of our team members who's wearing it loves using his watch to take pictures remotely but they didn't show it i can't believe they didn't show it such a visual thing too like i just i just kind of feel like however many icons there are on the home screen out of the box they need to be justified explain to us why why they're there you know and i guess you know i don't know to me there's a a and maybe it's justified maybe they're i was gonna say arrogance you know is justified that they're they know that it People will buy it and people will figure it out on their own. Um, but I'm surprised because to me, that's what that to me is how they that that's why I say that it felt like two different events. It like the first half focused on the MacBook did exactly what Apple to me always does. The hallmark of it is that they here's here's everything that's different and new about this. Here's why. And, you know, the trackpad, the keys, the uh, you know, the new screen technology, the lack of ports, you know, they're going away. You know, we do everything wirelessly now. Uh, and we've, d you know, done this amazing battery stuff to make it all work and shrunk the motherboard and gotten rid of the fans so that we had room for batteries. Boom, they explained it all. Whereas the watch, they're not doing that at all. 
And I don't want to read too much into it because I really have no idea behind the scenes who does what. But it, from the outside, externally, it's interesting to me that Schiller has had nothing to do with the watch on stage. And I don't know. That is I don't interesting. Know. You know, I just, I, I just couldn't, I can't see him doing a presentation like this where it's not explained. And I'm, again, I'm, I'm not trying to say that there's any kind of, uh, controversy inside Apple about it. Maybe he helped, you know, for all I know, he was right there and stage directed everything about the watch thing, even though he wasn't doing it. I don't know. But it just is interesting to me. No, I know to me it felt like a different tone and a different style of presentation. And it's interesting that Schiller had nothing to do with it at either event. It is interesting. And it does it is against his sort of presentation style, not to say this is what it is and explain it in in sort of enough detail but not too much to kind of get the point across why a it's special and b you'd want to use it right yeah and that that i think was missing from the the watch i have you know i have this theory and i'll float it here i was going to write about it but i'll float it here for the first time you can tell me what you think so i have this theory about the whole use case scenario obviously i think time saved is an initial metric to look at you know when you get a watch do I'm I'm gonna try to do this myself. I'm gonna try to like gauge how many times I look at my phone during the day, and then I'm gonna get the watch, put it on, and then measure how many times I look at the phone after that, and then see what the differential is. I think that would be an interesting metric to look at, right? But beyond that, so that's the initial thing. My theory is is that they have another strong use case for this, but it depends on third party buy-in and time so they can't talk about it yet and that use case is that the apple watch becomes a, a, a tube of lubricant for your life so you have the watch on your wrist you walk up to your car and your car unlocks with either a confirmation tap or just by proximity then you probably a, a tap i would guess because you want confirmation of a secure thing unlocking then you get in your car and your watch tells your your apple your carplay display that you want to listen to this music and this is you in the car so you can adjust your seats or whatever the case may be uh, to you uh, and it loads up your navigation for your morning drive on your apple maps because it knows this is the time you go to work or you go to school or whatever the case may be you you drive you stop at a gas station you get out you walk in you pay for coffee with your apple watch you walk out you get into your car you drive to school you get out you walk in, you hand in your homework by tapping your Apple Watch a couple times to transmit your, your homework to your teacher. You sit down, you cheat on your test with your Apple Watch. <laughs> you, get, you, know, you, you get the gist, right? Like you, right. This, these, these lubricants will add up to, once again, it's a, it's a time-saving theme, but they sort of allow you to kind of do this. And the model for this is the Magic Band, right, at the Disneyland or Disney World. Uh, where they have this band that has NFC and Bluetooth in it, and it's your wallet, and it's your ticket to the park, and it's your fast pass, which allows you to jump the line, and it's your uh, your signal that tells a, a cast member that you're nearby, and they can come up with a personalized offer, like, "Oh, hi, Matthew, would you like to meet Cinderella? She's right over here." You know, all of that stuff. And I think that there's a lot of fear involved in that, but there's also a lot of possibility. And I think that that maybe is their long game here, but they can't talk about it yet because they have to have the buy-in from the car manufacturers and from the POS and from the, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. 
I think that calling it uh, what uh, social lubricant or life lubricant, time yeah, lubricant. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I got to refine that because yeah, I know. But no, yeah, it, it is. I, like I think it. that that's the scenario. I also think that maybe more than time saved, what they're trying to pitch it as, and this to me, it's you know, it's very, it's not any different than any other smartwatch in terms of the mission statement, which is to me attention saved. That it takes less of your attention to glance at your watch than it does to glance at your phone. Um, Johnny Ive had an interesting quote in the Financial Times interview or feature that he that came out a week ago, where he said something about with a traditional watch that he noticed that many times he'd glance at his wrist to check the time and then realize that he hadn't even really noticed the time and had you would have to look twice because like the first time he paid was paying so little attention that it huh. didn't even register um that that's how lightweight a watch can be that you can almost pay not enough attention and have to check twice and that that's interesting and i do think that's sort of where they're going but on the other hand that pitch is no different than the pitch for android wear or for pebble or for Correct. anybody else yeah right Right, and the only the like only the, difference is is that it's our thing, and so we're going to make it easier than their thing. Yeah, you know the communication angle is all Apple. The sending a doodle, sending a heartbeat, sending a tap is that's uh, you know nobody else has anything like that, and it's very intimate and personal. The notification thing is like the obvious feature that everybody has thought of. Right, right. Yeah, I agree. So, and I mean, the reason, <laughs> just the very fact that we're having to dissect this makes me think that maybe they didn't communicate these things as clearly as they could. You know, they could. One of the things they showed, and I know that they've said this and people have noticed that, for, for example, somebody sends you a text and it will show up on your watch and you can respond either, like, I think three ways. Uh, like, you hit respond and it'll try to give you a couple of guesses in a button. You know, an example being, um, you know, I'm at the supermarket and I could uh, text my wife, uh, you know, the, the shopping list just says butter and I could say salted or unsalted butter. And then it's the AI is going to parse that. And if she answers on her watch, she will have buttons that say salted, unsalted, not sure, mm -hmm. uh, which is cool. Obviously, it does not cover every scenario. And then, you know, you can use the microphone to either send a recording of audio or to have the dictations, you know, dictate what you say. Um, I could see that being useful, but to me, it's interesting and telling and sort of questionable that you can't do that for email for email. You can only read. And if you want to reply, it has to be handed off to your phone. And yeah. I can kind of see why, because emails are longer and more complex and you know, how much dictation, you know, like text is the right amount of, length implicit implicit not necessarily enforced um like i don't know I, i'm not even sure what the largest iMessage you're allowed to send is in terms of words i don't even know if there is a limit but you know there's an implicit idea that it's a sentence or two whereas an email might be longer um but they showed it they showed on stage like reading an email on apple watch and it seems ridiculous <laughs> right it's it's <laughs> yeah it does 
the people that I talk to that have been using it kind of like you know, on and off uh, for a while or, or have had it on their wrist, they say that it's actually much more readable, I guess, than it seems. Yeah. And my experience on, in person was I, I pulled up some, some stuff that I could read and I s- scrubbed back and forth. And it's definitely readable. But it can, it's tiring, right? The reason they call them glances and the reason that a lot of their stuff is based on you flipping your watch up to look at it is like I was t- – doing a demo, recording a demo with uh, Daryl, my coworker, and we were, he was filming me and I was running through the watch's paces, right? For our like, you know, Apple watch hands-on thing. And as I'm holding my wrist up there and I'm dinking around with it and it took like three, four minutes or whatever to record the demo or five minutes. And by the end of it, my arm kind of hurt. Now I'm a little out of shape, but I don't think that had anything to do with it. It's just, it's an uncomfortable position to hold for a long period of time. Like, if you hold your arm up and out in front of you and position it so that you're looking at, like, your watch face, if you hold that for any more than maybe 30 seconds, it starts to get uncomfortable. It's just we're not sort of built to do that. And I think that that's an interesting thing. I don't think we're – I think we may read something a couple hundred words long, but not much longer than that. I've heard from people who've been to the the third-party lab, you know, that they're hosting, Mm -hmm. that they're inviting developers out for, that – well, maybe I might even be the first thing that they say is that you anything any feature you're thinking about for a watch app should be uh, ten to fifteen seconds or less of time. And if your idea is something that will take more than fifteen seconds, it's probably not a good idea for the watch. And if your idea currently takes more than fifteen seconds, and you can't, you know, you you should try to figure out a way to make it ten seconds. And I don't think it's so much about partly, partly it's about battery life, but I think partly it's even if the battery was a week long um, of serious use, I think that that advice will still stand for exactly the reason you said, like, it's just the nature of something on your wrist is ergonomically and whatever else, psychologically even is, you know, glances. Yep. And then the further away you get from glances, the less useful it is and the less people will want to, to utilize whatever app you've, you've designed. And I think yeah. there's going to be a, gro- a learning curve for that. Like people are going to ship stuff that's obviously not right, you know, or, or doesn't, yeah. doesn't work right. Did you, um, in the hands-on experience that you had, did you get to feel the taps? Oh, yeah, I did. And they're really cool. I mean, and this is I, – I'm glad you brought that up because this whole taptic thing is so worth talking about. Because I think it's a big part of Apple's future, uh, you know, on on all their devices. Oh yeah, we shit the bed by not talking about it. Yeah, with the totally. MacBook. <laughs> well, we can do it now. Good, yeah. good recall. <laughs> did you did you get like I felt taps in September, but they were all part of the demo loop, and it was mm-hmm. real. The only taps I felt were like when a text message arrived, and I thought, man, this is really cool. It's not like a. Do you agree? It's not like a vibration at all. Mm-hmm. It's it's a new sensation. Right. Yeah. Actually, uh, it's it's a haptic feedback but it's done by the use of uh what they call uh, lateral force fields which is essentially these forces that are directed sideways at one another and i believe it's the collision of those forces that they can shape to direct the the pressure downwards towards your wrist did you did you get to demo the whole left right thing because that was something I kn- I didn't get to f- experience in September. Like no, the, I and didn't. And they repeated it. I didn't. They repeated it again that if you're using it for walking directions, it'll give you a sense of turn right. Like, and I still <laughs> I can't I still can't imagine what that's like. It sounds awesome. Yeah. But it's like I still haven't gotten a, a to to experience it. No, that's a good question. I didn't I didn't do that. I I wish I had now. Um, 
Yeah, I could see how they could shape it, though, to, to go left or right, just knowing just a little bit that I know about the technology. There was this... Um, I mean, this goes for the the engine because I think that the engines share a lot of similarities between the Taptic engine and the in the watch, and the vibration or, or haptic feedback engine that's underneath the MacBook's touchpad. They share a lot of similarities. Yeah, and that I mean, they're essentially based on the um, same overall um, theory of the the way that they shape and move these vibrations. So the trackpad. And I just published something on this last night because I, I I asked some coworkers and they didn't know, but the trackpad doesn't move on the MacBook at all, right? right? Like there's a there's some sort of nanometer that they say it's allowed to move, but it doesn't move essentially, right? Because a nanometer's a hundred thousandth the thickness of a sheet of paper <laughs> or something, right? But right. it doesn't click. It doesn't actually physically move. So when you press it, there's a a sort of pressure sensitivity threshold that you're allowed to adjust, which I think is going to have great implications for accessibility, people with you know motor skills issues and things. But there's a certain pressure that you're allowed to push, and once you pass that threshold, it sends this signal using this, these LFFs, uh, these lateral force fields, uh, to, to simulate that the, the keypad has clicked. And it's the same thing that's using the Taptic engine is using, I believe, to direct the force straight down into yeah. your wrist. And it so, definitely feels straight down, like a finger yeah. pushing into your wrist. So hands-on with the MacBook, did it feel good, like clicking? Oh, it felt, it felt so good that I, an Apple person actually had to tell me it didn't move. Really? Yeah, because like I missed that it didn't move or something. I was, you know, there's a lot going on, and I guess yeah. I just missed it. And I was clicking on it, and I was like, oh, cool, cool. Later on, an Apple person told me, oh no, it doesn't move at all. Because I yes. thought that it had one level of click, and then with the force touch thing, you push down further, and then it vibrated your finger, and you felt like, oh, I'm clicking downwards further. But he's like, well, no, it doesn't move at all. <laughs> that says that says everything, though, that you didn't even realize that. Yeah. Uh, so in other words, I, I best way to put it, I guess, would be if the MacBook is powered off, there's no click at all. You'll just, it's right. like tapping the non-trackpad right. part. And yeah, I, I, had a, I had an Apple person tell me that they actually would like set two of them side by side. I guess they're, you know, testing and playing with them. And they could like play piano on them because they're so, they, they you know, vi they basically send all those pulses up. And you could yeah. like, you could like rotate your fingers on them and get this like sort of piano feel. But yeah, if it's off, that thing is not going to vibrate. It's not going to click at all. It's just this piece yeah. of glass. Uh, new stuff tends to ship iOS first. I mean, iOS is still the only thing with uh, uh, Touch ID. Um, it's just, you know, it's the nature of today's Apple. I think it's pretty telling that uh, Force Touch and the Taptic Engine came to the Mac before iOS. And I think the easiest prediction of 2015 is that this year's new iPhones are going to have Force Touch. And probably, I, I would bet, iPads too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, easily. And I think there's a Wall Street Journal thing that came out, like a report last night or this morning or something that said, you know, iPhones later this year are going to have Force Touch. And uh, yeah, it was like, duh, obviously, yeah. right? Um, yeah. There is, remember too that it's two separate technologies, right? So you have Force Touch, which is the, we know how hard you're pressing so we can do different things depending on how hard you press. And yeah. then there is the, the feedback lateral force fields yeah right, exactly exactly those haptic that haptic feedback yeah. and I, it would be interesting to me if one comes to the iphone without the other because it feels like they're intertwined technologies right because you get the four sensors around the trackpad which which they determine how hard you press and then in the middle you've got that engine which can give you the vibrations back i think it's i think they're i think it's both will come mm -hmm. because um how cool will it be if 
I think it'd be so great if your buttons on your phone actually click. That's yeah. so great. Yeah. Oh my God. As yeah. a, you, uh, that seems like, honestly, that it seems to me like it, it's, it'll be best on iOS, uh, it, you know, even more impressive than it is anywhere else. Cause I think that would be so cool to have touch screen buttons that actually click. Oh man, that'd be great. I'm, I'm waiting. excited just thinking about it. I'm waiting to, to email John Chen to ask him for his reactions. The CEO of BlackBerry. I just want to, like all these years, you got your wish. Like clickable keys on yeah. the iPhone. <laughs> God, I didn't even think about it for typing. I didn't even think about it, but that would be, that'd be great. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the other thing they even say, they're saying for the Mac is with the trackpad is that it's pressure sensitive drawing. You know mm-hmm. that you, and that's on a trackpad. Now take that up. It, how much better would it be for pressure sensitive drawing on an iPad? It's mm-hmm. crazy. It'd be fantastic. Yeah, and the I pressure- think it really, really makes sense to me that the pressure is registered on the device and not through the stylus. So you have a dumb stylus or your finger, and a smart pad that which is where the pressure is registered. I think any, you know, all previous efforts that put the pressure sensitivity in a stylus, uh, they had to if they wanted to work on iOS, obviously. But I think that's the backwards way of doing it. Yeah, totally. 100%. And it, on a, it makes an iPad instantly kind of more attractive than, say, a Cintiq or something like that. Because you're, you're drawing, you know, you're drawing on this mobile device that has all these capabilities. And now it has pressure, pressure sensitivity as well. The one thing that they would be missing at that point, which I would really love to see them fix, is the latency issue, right? Because they're still way they're way above like the ten millisecond threshold. They're at like thirty or forty or something, or maybe even higher. I, I can't remember what it is exactly, but uh, below ten second ten milliseconds is where you sort of get this feel where it's one-to-one, like your pen tip, mm. it, it follows your pen tip exactly. Because right now, if you scrub on an iPad, like drawing, your drawing falls way behind, you know, the, the iPad typically, yeah. uh, or t- the stylus tip, rather. Uh, and that's like a, a screen latency issue. And so if they were able to fix that and give this sort of pressure sensitivity uh, to the screen, I mean, it, it, just, it would instantly make it the best drawing surface out there, electronic drawing surface yeah. out there. And and a lot of artists are already doing amazing work drawing on iPads, but it's you know like you said it's it, it could totally take it to another level. And I agree, the latency is totally an issue. I'm not an artist; I don't really draw, but I notice it whenever I have to sign my name, like at an Apple store, to you know sign out on an mm, iPhone mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah, it lags behind, and it, it's it's surmountable. Like the artists, there are many artists doing really really cool stuff on iPad. I've seen tons of art like the, uh, apple's last ad thing featured a bunch of art created on an ipad right and so there's obviously people doing neat stuff there but they're they're bypassing that difficulty by training themselves and i think that just giving them the the one-to-one the true one-to-one as as we've always had with like taps and scrolling uh but doing that with like vigorous drawing or expressive drawing would would help a lot for sure yeah um what did you think of the watches themselves? Like, which any of the bands stand out to you? Uh, so I'll make I'll make my you know purchase prediction now. I think I'm probably going to end up with the uh, black, uh, the the space black with the black rubber band. I think that's probably what I'm going to end up with, and not because I don't like the links, but just because I think it's 
I just think I'm going to get more day-to-day use out of that, and then I may end up purchasing like links separately later on. But like the black with black links or the black with the the band is kind of what I'm leaning towards right now. Uh, steel, uh, steel or sports? Uh, the black with the black sports band. Yeah, but that's yeah, the that's sports one, right? Because I, uh, I think the black steel one only comes with the links. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. You're talking about black sport or black aluminum, right? With the steel, yeah. No, probably black aluminum because I think the steel only comes with the steel link. So it would be either one of those two things. Yeah. Yeah, those are the exact two that I, that I like. Although I'm not sure, I want to see it in person because it does seem to me, and I know a lot of people said it on Twitter that it looks like the black steel model with the link bracelet is darker than what they showed in September and what they've had on their website until yesterday or until Monday. But I don't know though if that's a difference in like the product photography or if they actually change the material between then and now. Right. Right. Yeah. I, that's what you're saying. I mean, I think they could have. They could have definitely enhanced it, maybe to make it a bigger differential. It's possible for sure, but I think that the black, the black or the black steel is probably the most instantly attractive to me. Um, but in person, the black one looks gorgeous. I mean, it's highly, it's like a chrome, um, but it's very, very, very pretty. I, I think that they did a great job with that. And the black steel links, that's just, it's beastly. It's a very manly design, obviously. No, I don't want to project, you know, and right. I'm sure some women may love it, but it seems to me like it's aimed at the male market. Um, but almost all of them had an attractiveness, a genuine attractiveness. The aluminum ones... <laughs> The aluminum ones do look very utilitarian next to the other stuff. Like almost everything else looks very classy, very polished and refined. And the aluminum ones are aluminum, you know, and it's, there's just a difference there. And remember too, the aluminum ones are the only ones that don't have like a colored crown. Like the, the end of the crown is just bull nosed into aluminum. So it, there's definitely a feeling of like, Hey, this is a, a, a tool where the other things are maybe a little bit more, uh, your personal style, you know? Hey everybody, John here. Sorry about this, but the next minute or two of the audio of this episode is a bit garbled, uh, like some kind of awful sounding digital artifacts, something from a low rent horror movie or something. Uh, we're not sure what happened. Nothing we can do about it. Seemed better to keep it for the content than to cut the whole thing and have the show be a bit disjointed. Uh, but I figured we'd do an insert here just to let you know that it's not like you got a bad copy of the file or something like that. There's a known issue. It lasts about a minute or two. Uh, we'll do our best to make sure it doesn't happen again. Sorry about that. And uh, thanks for listening. Yeah. I, I uh, My pricing guess is pretty good. I certainly got the edition ones right. Uh, I overshot on the steel, and I, in hindsight, it was basically I, the thing. I, the mistake I made was overlooking how easy it is physically, mechanically to swap bands. And there's no reason for that if they weren't going to try to sell multiple bands at your purchase, which means the pricing. I, I should have been able to guess exactly the, the final pricing for steel, because once you assume that the bands would be priced to sell. Uh, everything else falls into place. I think what's interesting pricing-wise, though, so let's say you want to get a 42-millimeter steel and you want to get the link bracelet. It's $999, right? If you, unless you want to get the black, right? Right. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and the black's like a hundred bucks more or something like that. Or fifty bucks more or something. Uh, let me double check. Yeah, nine ninety nine, and it's fifty dollar premium, or no, a hundred dollar premium to get space black. Okay, mm-hmm. but let's just say you get the silver one, the silver colored stainless steel, nine hundred ninety nine dollars. Um, if you buy the sport model, it's six hundred dollars, and the link bracelet is only four hundred fifty. So it would only, I guess, I guess, so I guess you'd pay $50 more then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess, I guess it's just, it all works out. So if you buy, I was thinking that you would save 50 bucks, but no, it's, I was getting confused between 38 millimeter and 48 millimeter, 42 millimeter prices. So no, it's exactly the same. So you don't pay any penalty. If you buy the one that comes with the rubber band and buy a link bracelet, you pay the exact same amount as if you buy the one with the link bracelet and buy a $50 rubber band. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's it. Well, I remember too, though, that you've got a metal mismatch there. Louis Mantia made a nice chart of stuff that quote matches end quote and stuff that doesn't. In other words, the pin is a different metal than the casing, or the buckle is a different metal than the casing, or even the links are a different metal than the casing. So those won't match, right? So because there's only steel and black steel in the link bracelets, so those won't match the casing finish on the aluminum so if you don't mind a metal mismatch then you're golden you can do that and it won't cost you any extra but it will miss it it won't match it won't match exactly the metals yeah i don't think that matters as much i think anybody who does it it's not going to look bad per se uh because it actually is slightly different than the steel anyway because the steel the case is highly polished and the bracelet is not the Mm -hmm. bracelet is um sort of brushed which actually makes sense because it would you know the bracelet's going to take more scratches than it would scar and scuff right right Mm -hmm. yeah um you know you see that a lot on on traditional watch bit you know bracelet bands that you know some of them are polished but that's more like when you get like a platinum or gold or something like that if it's stainless it's often not polished yeah and on the physical nature of the watches while we're talking about the bands and the casings it just for listeners if that haven't you know had the chance to to feel these things they're a lot thinner than they look both the bands and the casing and this goes for all the bands like all of them are a lot thinner in person width wise you know height wise i should say than it than it looks like in these images these images make them look like the camera adds 10 pounds the camera's yeah. adding 10 pounds to all of these casings and bands because i'm looking right now at an image of the 42 millimeter stainless steel with the link bracelet and that link bracelet looks fat and it's right. not it's actually surprisingly thin yeah uh, and and the same goes for the casings too yeah um so I don't I, I I should have predicted that. I think they're going to sell a ton of these bands. Like especially like the Milanese Loop is only like uh I think it's only 150 bucks. Yeah, 150, which I was surprised by. Yeah, I think that that's almost like a no-brainer. Like I think people might be hesitant to buy the uh link bracelet since it's, you know, especially like you say, I mean you you will be able to just buy the sport watch and get the link bracelet. But I think people who are price sensitive enough to want to go that way aren't going to want to spend more on the link bracelet than the watch itself cost. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I just don't think that's going to come up much. I'm sure, you know, that some people will do it, but I think it's, it's not even worth worrying about in terms of, you know, should Apple, should Apple have strategic, you know, done something to try to prevent it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and well, the more I look at it, I mean, the, the Milanese, uh, I've noticed actually a lot of people from Apple wearing those. It seems to yeah. be pretty popular. And, 
the, the ease of which it goes on and off uh, and the like, kind of classiness of it, it, I think it could be the dress band of choice yeah. you know, for a lot of these people that buy like a, a sport or buy a, even a steel with a sport band, you know, because of, of the cost. It could be the dress band of choice for the masses. And I think that it's it definitely has maybe a more high fashion appeal. Because the Milanese bracelet, unless you were a watch fanatic, you probably never even knew the name, even if you right. saw it in a casing or whatever. Um, but it's obviously a very classic bracelet. It's been around a lot of years. But I just think that it may actually have a nice, dressy, shiny metal feel for people that don't want to spend the $450 for the steel bracelet. I think yeah. that's actually going to be a popular dress one. Yeah, and if you're the sort of person who's fussy about having something sized perfectly, and I am, like, and I, you know, in my life, I've always worn watches, and there's been a lot of times in my life where I've bought a watch and found that there are like two holes, you know, like with a classic <laughs> buckle, mm-hmm. and one's a little too tight, and the other one's a little too loose, and I've always, you know, I'd regret that they're, you know, like whoever designed the watch, the strap hadn't moved the holes like half a click to the you know up or down mm-hmm. um the milanese loop it doesn't have that problem because it's it's you can size it to exactly you know where it's you want once one size fits all so to speak or so continuously anybody, adjustable right anybody who's fussy about that is you know going to love that as a sizeability thing mm-hmm. uh, i think the other thing i guess i wanted to talk about is the timing of the event and i know there were a lot of questions going in like well if they've been saying april but then why are they holding this event on March 9th? And the answer is, I don't know, <laughs> even <laughs> after the event, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I'm not quite sure. So the timing is they had this event on March 9th. The next date is April 10th, which is when they're going to start taking pre-orders and when they're going to have watches in Apple stores to look at. Um. And then the next date is April 24th, which is when they're going to start shipping and selling. Am I, I think I have all that yes. right. Yeah. Those, those are the dates. Yeah. Um, so why hold the event? What? Seven weeks in advance of uh, a month in advance of pre-orders and one, two, three, four, five, six weeks before it ships. I don't, I don't get it. I, I don't either. And I mean, my mind's my mind's totally blank on this issue. So I, I, the only thing I can I can spitball on this, to use your phrase, is that they m- might be trying to give reviewers a bigger window. Um, I mean, as far as I know, review units weren't issued for these watches yet. But I mean, I certainly don't have one. I'll I'll really say that although if i did have one i would probably say the same thing but um <laughs> well you wouldn't you'd say nothing <laughs> no that's right you're right i would say nothing so yeah i don't have one um so but it, it would seem to me like that maybe they want to give people more time with them because they feel that there's more time but that's literally the only and i'm speaking not as a person who i'm not assuming that i'm going to get a review you know i never do i've only ever gotten one review thing and i think it was probably an accident Somebody probably included me on a, on a list on accident. <laughs> um, but I, th- just speaking as an interested party, like anybody else, I, I'm thinking, what if you want to give people more time to live with these things before they write a review of them rather than the traditional one-week window? And I know they like to keep that window tight, but look at the distance between, say, the pre-order and the sale. That's a lot of time, yeah. you know? So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It might be different because, like, hey, 
reviewing a new phone, you know what an iPhone does. You, you know, you've been out for six years. You don't need more than eight days to review it because all you're really reviewing is what's new, which like this year was it's bigger, uh, touch ID or, or Apple pay. And you know, how good is the new camera? You know, you can do that in a week and maybe like, you're right. Maybe like this all new platform, uh, you know, a new way to get through your day of interacting with your devices and staying connected, you might need more time. I can honestly say this is, you know, the weird thing about me not having been at the event. Uh, you know, I do not have a review unit, nor have I talked to anybody at Apple about getting one. So, you know, I'm completely in the dark as to whether anybody has one, whether I'm going to get one. And if, if I did, when, you know, at some point, I might have to shut up and stop talking. If I do, I... <laughs> it's just like a warrant canary where, like, the right. company they, they take it off their website, and you're like, "Oh my god, the NSA is like, <laughs> the NSA hit them up for info." <laughs> yeah, sort of. I guess like every you can just keep listening to the talk show and see if I say <laughs> I don't have a review unit Apple Watch, nor have I been told that uh, that I'm getting one. So I don't know. I would yeah. be very, very surprised if anybody has one. Mm-hmm right now. I just don't think that they would give them out six weeks in advance. It just would be so unlike them. I wouldn't be surprised if maybe they give, if they seed them April 10th, you know, two weeks in advance and get, which would be a little bit more time than they usually do. But I, I don't know. And, and the other thing that's weird about it is in my experience, getting review units since 2011, um, every time I've ever gotten a review unit of any product from Apple, big, you know, flagship or minor upgrade. Uh, it's been given to me in person and they don't just ship them. Although, well, I have heard of them shipping review units, but I don't know that it's ever been a new cat. Well, it's never been a new category of product. It was like, right. you know, like an upgrade to something or, or whatever. I have heard of them doing that. But. Yeah, I, I, I've gotten them for software products. Like they've sent me like a review unit uh, with um, uh, the Yosemite public beta mm -hmm. on it so that, I, you know, it's weird. It's like they do. Oh, it, yeah, right. That makes sense because it's the, not like the object itself. It's the software. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it was shipping on a totally bog standard, you know, uh, MacBook Pro. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just a funny thing that they say. I think they make a list of who they want to send them to and based on, you know, whatever criteria. And then I made the list and they sent it. But it's just funny because I was already running the Yosemite public beta on my actual <laughs> MacBook because I'm in the developer program and I know how to do it and I'm. I, you know, I know the risks, but I know, you know, they do it for a good reason that they don't want, you know, typical journalists risking, you know, screwing up their MacBook by putting a public beta on it. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I, I, there's no way they're just going to ship me this, <laughs> but if they haven't given them out, there's a chance I could get, like, I will not, there's no way I'm going to be able to fly before April 24th. So if, you know, if there are review units, I don't, but I don't think they're going to have another event, so I don't think there would be any reason to fly. So maybe they'll hold briefings in New York like they sometimes do, and I, I could do that. Mm -hmm. So I can take a train. I just can't fly. Yeah, I mean, if they did it separate from an event, because normally they do these things away from an event, right? So if they are at an event, rather. So if they're doing it away from an event, it would be a similar thing to when they held briefings, um, you know, in New York for whatever it was, Mavericks or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I think it was Mavericks. Yeah, and there was a bunch of people invited to that, and they just made the trip to the city from wherever they were, or if they were in the city, they came, you know, and there was several uh, scheduled throughout the day. So they could fee uh, feasibly do that, but it would seem to me that it would limit their ability to 
to talk to the people or give them to the people that they wanted to because I'm sure the reviewers are scattered everywhere. It's not just journalists. I have, I would, I would be insanely shocked if they gave an addition to a journalist and not to a, a watchmaker or not watchmaker, but a watch reviewer, right? Like a high end fashion reviewer or watch reviewer. I could see them giving an addition model to them to evaluate from that perspective. I actually see two, two new areas where I would be surprised if they don't. I'm, I would say it's dead certain. I, I, the one I would bet money on is that they will cede review units to fashion people like mm-hmm. Vogue or, you know, I, I, I don't know enough about the fashion world to say who would get them, you know, but like Vogue, GQ, uh, magazines like that um, from the fashion world. But that's not necessarily the watch world, not like the watch, you know, like the Ben Clymer, Hodinkee type guys. But I think mm-hmm. they'll probably cede them to them too. But I think it's more certain that they'd give it to the fashion people and a little less certain that they'd give it to the watch people. Because I feel like the watch people are still sort of, there's a sort of, you know, this is interesting, but it's not really a watch watch because, mm-hmm. you know, it's the mechanics of a mechanical watch that are so big a part of the obsession. Mm-hmm. And everything else is ancillary. It's really right. the movements and, and that, yeah. the creation of that that we're interested in. Yeah. Yes, but I don't know. I, I But I, if I had to bet, though, I would, I'd bet a little bit less than the fashion people, but I would bet they'd give it to them, too. Because the one thing that is mechanical are the bands. And I know, just from talking to Ben Clymer at the last event, they're super, super interesting to the watch people because they've really, you know, in, in a lot of ways, like the modern buckle and the link bracelet, um, they've really, like, shown up the watch world. You know, mm-hmm. if the if the link bracelet holds up, and right. there's a question about that because link bracelets, you know, traditionally it's called stretch. Where if you get like uh, an old, you know, older Rolexes suffer if you buy like a vintage Rolex, usually the band is it the the bracelet is loose. It it jangles a little, just because over time, you know, it just the the connections between the links get stretched. Um, and the companies like Rolex and, and Omega, you know, the higher end ones have gotten good at that over the years and they make bracelets that last a lot longer now. Um, Apple's brand new at this. So there's a question as to whether the link bracelet one year later is going to still be just as tight as it was when you bought it. Um, but, but the assuming, engineering that went into it is insane. Assuming that it is, though, they've they've totally shown them up. Like the way right. that you can adjust it and take links off without a special tool is groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. And the clasp is way better. The clasp on the Apple link bracelet is way better than the mechanically as it been uh, in terms of cleverness than the clasp on a Rolex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's why I think they'll probably give it to the watch people. I think the watch people will probably spend more time writing about the, the bracelets than they will the, the software. Mm. Hmm. So I yeah. don't know. I really, I, it's so funny that they held this event that I, I went into it thinking that they were going to answer just about all my questions. And, and they <laughs> right. honestly, they, I, I feel like they answered almost none of them really. Mm-hmm. I mean, or at least fewer than half. I still have no idea when they're going to seed review units. If they're, I feel like they have to, right. They're not going to let this thing ship without having anybody review it. I mean that would that would look so the optics would look so bad. It's right. like when they release a movie and they they don't the review embargo drops the day before and everybody's right. like, oh yeah, this is going to be great. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. That would be. It would be. It would. It would be. Yeah. Because because if they don't give review unit, and I just say this saying, not, take myself out of it. I don't feel entitled to one. I I don't know. I never know whether I'm going to get a review unit or not. I. My guess that I might is only based on the fact that I've gotten review units of everything for the last few years. But if it ever stopped, if, you know, I just never get a call and, you know, April 
10th and 24th come and go, you know, I'll just buy one. You know, I, I did just fine, you know, in the years before I got review units, I'll just buy one and, and evaluate it, but I'm going to write about it either way. Right. It's just a question of when it'll, the review will come out and everybody else will like, that'll be true for every pub. Everybody who wants to review the Apple watch is going to review it, whether they have to wait to buy one April 24th or not. So I can't see why they wouldn't give review units if, you know, but at w- when and how total mystery. Right. So crazy. And, I mean, the the thing to me about it, the reason that the more timing makes sense is because it is a new category. You have to think about it a little differently. And they're, if they give people more time to think on it, I think that they'll be better off. Because if they did wait and just everybody bought one and, and evaluated it, everybody's going to be in this mad rush to write about it. And they mean, if Apple feels that you need to live with it, to let it simmer before you start to see the value in it, then it makes sense for them to give you more time. <laughs> You're that's such a good point. I didn't even think about that because I'm never in a rush to be first. So right. I wasn't even thinking that. But so many other people are. You're right. What what'll happen if they don't see the review units is people will buy it like when the Apple store opens on April 24th or noon or whenever they say they're going to start selling them and they're going to try to publish a review like two hours later. Oh, sure. Yeah. It'll be a rush. I mean, just speaking as somebody who is a yeah, we're in a different position. Like the instant the embargo drops, like we are under pressure to publish because that initial, the, the capture of initial attention, you know, that's, that's important to a publication. Right. right. And so everybody's going to be rushing to get that. And if there is no holds barred, like no embargo, everybody's just going to be publishing willy or nilly. They're going to be publishing all kinds of wackadoo uh, hack job reviews, right? right? And like, you know, I give my, my my writers, just for context, I give my writers permission to publish whenever they want on this stuff. I don't, I'm not sitting there over their shoulder. Are you done with this? We got to publish when the embargo drops. Usually it's ready because like Daryl usually does our reviews and he does a great job and he's very conscientious and, and takes care of business, right? But my philosophy on it is publish when it's ready, not when everybody else is. And like last time I published my review like the next day or something. Right. Yeah. And I, I'm totally fine with that hundred percent philosophically, but a lot of publications are not at all. Right. Yeah. They are like, get it out now immediately. I don't care what state it's in, finish it. And so you're only going to exacerbate that issue. If you uh, just let it drop and everybody just rushes to, to crap out like hack jobs about the watch. Yeah. It'll be curious. So I'm curious to see, I'm going to assume that they will seed review units. Uh, it'll be curious to see whether it's more limited than usual because they want to be careful about who d- has reviews for the embargo dropping whenever their embargo date's going to be. I presume typically it's like the Tuesday or Wednesday before the Friday that they ship. Um, or if it'll be more, in you know like it like not more inclusive than than usual but as inclusive as like the iPhones and iPads have been lately where they've really cast a wider net um which i think strategically is it's sort of like the new open apple and i think it is a little bit it's confidence in the products and that they it it's actually to me less risky because if they're confident in the product then the consensus of the reviews will get it right and one bad review won't sink it. Whereas to me, it's dangerous to do it like they did with the original iPhone, like where there were only, I think there were only four people who had review units. There was right. Pogue, Mossberg, um, Stephen Levy had one for Newsweek, and I think Ed Begg for USA Today. I'm not sure about it, Ed. But I, th- those are the only four people, I think, who had review units for the original iPhone. So if even one of them had had a bad experience with it, you know, 
that could that would have been like twenty five percent of the reviews. Were, <laughs> you know, this thing's no good. Yeah, their Rotten Tomato score goes way down, right? But right. if you have seventy people doing it, and you know, three of them didn't like it, it's no big deal. Right. So I don't know. I'm it'll be curious to see, but it's I feel like they're so different in so many ways these days that it's it's fun, but it makes it means it's a lot harder to predict. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess we should wrap up, but I, one thing yeah. we haven't even touched on is the addition. Oh jeez. Yeah. Yeah, what do you what do you think? I'll let you I'll let you kick that off. What do you well, think? Well, uh I think I was right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you were. You were you nailed the I mean you you guessed ten thousand for starting, right? Right. And yeah. you know, I I think I talked myself down from it with the rubber band because I I'm still confused by this, but that it just seems to me so incongruous that a ten thousand dollar watch would have effectively the same band as the four hundred dollar one. Yes, I know that the pin is made out of solid gold. Um but it just seems like a weird play to me that they don't that they didn't do what I thought they might do, which is have a gold link bracelet and a gold Milanese um, and charge for them. Um, maybe they just aren't ready, or maybe they couldn't execute well, on them, or maybe you know, maybe they're not. Maybe you know, the people who are speculating that maybe the gold is too hard to work into those shapes are true. I don't know, but uh, it just seems to me like they're leaving money on the table. If anything, though, it means that my pricing was actually low because if they do come out with a link bracelet. Uh, in gold, I think it's going to be thirty thousand or maybe forty, not twenty, sure, sure. because Easy. they're char- they're charging seventeen for the uh, modern buckle. Mm-hmm. That modern buckle, the more I look at it, I mean, I know this is like the this is like the most obvious statement in the world, but that red leather with yellow gold is so clearly aimed at China, and I'm there might be women all over the world who are itching to get that because it's cool looking thing but i mean it's like literally the colors of the chinese flag i mean everything you know like chinese new year is you know everything's red and gold that is so clearly aimed. if you had to ask me what the primary market for the edition is it's not rich people in america it's rich people in china that's my opinion right that's just one person's opinion so don't this is not some grand pronouncement but i really think that a significant portion of edition sales will be there and i think apple expects them to be there um, because there is money in China and there is an intense focus on status and this concept of like face of, of having, you know, status through possessions and through gifts and that sort of thing. So I think that there's definitely going to be an enormous market for it there. I don't think it's just rich dudes in America who want to show off status. I think it's rich, rich, I shouldn't say dudes, but rich people everywhere that want to show yeah. off status, you know. And I think that that is there's going to be a big market for it outside of the the billionaires who want to pronounce their billionaireness here, you know. It's going to be everywhere. Yeah, and it's you know it's definitely a cultural difference too, where you know here there's an awful. You know, I, they're definitely going to sell some in the United States. No, I mean they're going to sell some everywhere, but. In terms of what it says when you see somebody who's wearing one, a lot of people, and I'm sure, you know, the, the tech minded audience of this show, there's a lot of people out there who are listening to our, us speak right now who are going to think exactly what I'm going to say, which is, let's say you're out, you see somebody in, uh, at the bar next to you and you see, holy shit, that's a gold Apple watch. And your first thought is going to be douchebag. <laughs> Uh, exactly it, yeah <laughs> in asia though that's it's not the case it's you know no, ostentatious uh, displays of wealth have a different cultural connotation than they do here right um it's like the concept of fitness how that's changed like in roman times if you were fit that meant you were a field worker right 
and if you were you know relatively you know corpulent or 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 full figured either as a man or a woman that meant you had leisure time and you had the wealth to have other people do your manual labor for and, you and, you know you know and to to have the ability you know food itself you know was a luxury mhm you know? mhm right totally i agree with that um i i thought it was i thought it was almost baffling how little they talked about addition and i <laughs> i, I did yeah I it was. really do. And I hate to say this because I could be totally wrong. This is 100% speculation on my part, but I sense conflict and internal conflict and disarray among their ranks uh, with regard to how little they talked about it. Because it clearly was not cut for time. The event was only 88 minutes long, and two hours is the limit on, on an Apple event. I mean, you know, obviously, if they wanted to go more than two hours, they could, but I know that internally, they shoot for two hours or less. And like the September event clocked in at exactly two hours, and that was, you know, they clipped stuff. It was very, very, very clipped in terms of, you know, we have to do the, we have to do three things, these new phones, Apple Pay, and the watch, and we got to squeeze you two in at the end. <laughs> um, it was hard. And they had to touch know, fingers at the end. <laughs> um, but they could have. And so, for example, this, it, it they, they talked about uh, sport, and then they had a little Johnny Ive video talking about how they make the aluminum. Then they talked about Apple Watch, and they had a little Johnny Ive video talking about the steel. And then uh, Tim Cook said, you know, like three sentences about addition, and then the event was over. There is a video. It's on Apple's website. There's an, a video, the exact same style, of Johnny Ive talking about how they make the gold. Mm-hmm. I mean, why they didn't show that in the event is baffling to me. Yep. Like, why not brag? If you're going to brag about how you made some aluminum, why in the world wouldn't you brag about how you made the gold? I cannot help but feel that there is some kind of disagreement there about the messaging, exactly along the lines of what us on the outside have been saying all along, that this seems like it's not, you know, selling $17,000 watches doesn't seem like Apple. Exactly. Yeah. And, I mean, my argument on it is is that if you have a, a gold watch, that works exactly the same as a lower end watch, then there's two ways to look at it. You can look at it from the person who buys the aluminum and says that gold watch works exactly the same as mine. That person who bought it is an idiot, right? Right. Or you can be the gold, the person who has the money to buy the gold watch. Now I don't ascribe to this whole false argument like, Oh, you could buy this or you could buy, you know, you could contribute to charity because anybody who has this kind of money can spend money on anything they want. Right. This is not a person who scrimps and saves ten thousand dollars to buy a watch. This is a person who, for ten thousand dollars, is maybe not throwaway money, but it's certainly not a problem to spend this kind of money. Right. So they buy this watch and they put it on, and it works exactly the same as the lower end one. But they look at the person with the aluminum and go, um, "Oh, I'm so glad I could afford the gold." And I think that what that comes down to is. You've got this argument both ways, up and down, and it comes down to how it makes you feel. Like that's the pro argument for the having the gold. It's if it makes you feel better, wear it. It works exactly the same as the other one, so we're not shortchanging the person who can only afford the aluminum. You know, the people who are saying, Oh, well, if it had another sensor or another this or another that, I would buy it. I would spend more money on it. But to me, that would be anti Apple. That yeah. would be a very un Apple thing to do, to make the the one whose materials were more expensive work better as well. And instead, you know, they're saying, no, you can buy whatever you want. It's up to you. Here you go. Yeah. I, 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 you know, as my, my predictions have been high for the price of edition all along. Um, 
And I've not been opposed to it in and of itself, just because the price is high. Uh, because to me, the people who are so upset about it and feel like that it's a sign that Apple has changed inevitably, you know, for the worse as a company and that they don't stand for what they used to stand. All of those arguments to me all sound as though the Apple Watch Sport doesn't exist. You know, mm-hmm. like if this, and quite frankly, given the the $550 starting price for the steel, I actually think it would be fine then if the sport didn't, if the sport didn't exist this year and the starting price was the 540, the $550, $600 steel version. I actually think that's not bad either. Cause that's, you know, that's where like the iPhone started at $600. But the fact is there is one for $350, $400. And so I don't understand the the argument that it's that the price of the gold one alone is any kind of a bad sign because like you and again because they're functionally equivalent I feel like it's egalitarian downright I am not put off by the price at all yeah. I don't I don't it, you know I think they're going to sell them and why not I think they're you know it's interesting and I don't think they had to I think that if they had sh- uh, likewise if they had shipped Apple Watch and never done the gold one and the most expensive model was the space black steel one that would have been fine too. I don't think anybody would say they've botched it. I think it's interesting, but the price doesn't bother me. And I, I, I'm bothered by the fact that they seem uncomfortable talking about mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. That they're of two minds about it, right? Yeah. Like you, if you're going to do it, own it. Like if you're right. going to offer a gold fancy model because you want it to appeal to people who have this amount of money to spend, just say some people like nicer things, some ni- nicer metals, or maybe not even nicer is the wrong word for it, but whatever. Some people like these materials, so we're offering it. But don't like be ashamed of it. <laughs> right. right. So a lot yeah. of people, a lot of people have been saying to me, like with my ten thousand dollars starting price, uh, two arguments I heard. <laughs> One of them was somebody, a couple people told me, you know, you know this because you're in San Francisco uh, or, you know, TechCrunch is in San Francisco, but you know that there's a lot of Apple employees have been spotted wearing Apple Watch for the last couple months out and about. Uh, And I've gotten emails from people who've seen people wearing gold ones. So they're like, well, that's obviously not going to be $10,000 because what company would give an employee a $10,000 watch to wear as a test unit? And my answer (laughs) to them is always, uh, Apple. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Like that was not proof that the thing was not $10,000. No. Like uh-uh. uh, Apple has some money, you know? Yeah. Uh, and also Apple's cost is not $10,000. Like the watch doesn't cost $9,000 to make. Uh, <laughs> but um, the other thing that people have said is, well, how are they going to announce that price? You really think Tim Cook's going to stand in front of a slide that reads nine 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 nine? And uh, also, it's interesting to me. I should have predicted that they're not going with nine 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 pricing. It's ten thousand dollars, seventeen thousand dollars. Yeah, very deliberate. Very. As deliberate. soon as I yeah. saw that, I the first thing I did is I opened up a tab. I went to Tiffany dot com and started browsing around, and that's how Tiffany charges too. Like if you buy a seventeen thousand dollar bracelet at Tiffany, it's one seven zero zero zero. No, and every other watch is nine 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 zero zero. Yeah, or or nine zero zero, like every other watch they offer, uh, yeah. Apple watches, uh, yeah. but the editions are not. Yeah. Right, uh, yeah. I should have predicted that. Once you, you know, at, at at that level, the unit is not the dollar. The unit is the thousand dollar. It's how many thousand dollars, and that's just the unit that people who are going to buy that think in. Um, but the answer is, uh, he didn't stand in front of a slide with any prices. He just said it, <laughs> no. and it was. Right. I think it was awkward. I think it was terribly awkward. Mm-hmm. 
You know what it would have been better? If I mean, I know the, the name edition was supposed to evoke the fact that this was a special edition, but they should have really just labeled it a special edition. Like, we don't know how long we're going to offer it. It's exclusive. It's limited quantities. But we loved the process so much that we had to. Oh, right? That's such a brilliant way to put it. That's perfect, Michael. All right, Matthew. <laughs> We've been <laughs> podcasting right. too long. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I just think it would have no, sidestepped a lot of the issues, you know? Th- that's perfect framing, though. That is absolutely spot-on perfect framing. We loved it so much. We've loved this. We love this material. We wanted to share it with you, mm-hmm. you know? And that materials video, if you watch the gold, I'm sure you've watched the gold one. I mean, it is insane. They mill it out of a block of gold, just like they do the aluminum. Whereas like all, almost all these other watches are cast, I think. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's it's a crazy process. So they should have just stood on the process, which ironically is what they did like with the MacBook when they went all aluminum, remember? Yeah, originally yes, the unibody, yes. they stood on top of the process and said, we're charging this much for this thing because look at all this effort we put into it. Yeah, and so you could, they could have done the same thing here, and I think there was a missed opportunity there for them just to to say it's a, this is a separate thing, it's special, it's expensive, all these other things do the exact same thing, but we just wanted you to see this awesome thing we were able to construct, and we think you might enjoy it too, and if you do, you can buy it for this much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the last, just the last bit of confusion over this is. He did say it'll be limited limited quantities, uh, and then all he said is it'll be available in select retail stores, and that's mm-hmm. it in terms of where. Now we know about these pop up stores that are, they're putting in like uh, Paris and I think London too um, that are not Apple stores. They're just going to be like standalone boutiques where you're going to buy Apple Watch. Um, but it, no explanation as to what that means. Does that mean select Apple stores? He didn't say select Apple stores. He said select retail stores. And that's crazy. But it looks like it is. And then further craziness, it looks like they're going to sell them on online. Yeah, I mean, it says select. There's select buttons, right? When you go to the buy watch uh, by the editions. So it seems like you could buy them online. So why the select retail stores, right? Yeah. And then my only my only thought is they have a limited quantity and they can only allocate. So they're not going to send one watch to every store. Instead, they're going to send their additions to the store, that store, and this store. So my feeling on it, and I don't know any about this, but it, it'll be flagship Apple stores and then retail partners that are high end, like you know whatever Tiffany, not Tiffany's, but you know yeah. those high end retailers that offer other brands goods. Yeah, it's possible. Uh, t- I, I doubt that they're going to do it with Tiffany, but Tiffany has sold like Rolexes in the past. They don't right now. Like they, I think the only watches you can get at Tiffany are Tiffany ones. But in the past, they've had Rolexes. But then, mm. but then it's like they're they're stamped on the dial, like they're you know collectors' items because there's you know there's a limited number of them. Right, so it's I, a Tiffany's yeah. edition Rolex or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder too. I wonder too whether addition with these partners, whether there is an as yet undisclosed thing where they will have their own bands, like a, like this is mm. toss out Burberry, you know that maybe uh, Burberry will sell Apple Watch edition in limited locations, and you'll be able to get a band that's designed by Burberry instead of Apple. Wow. I mean, that would play the exclusivity game even further, right? right? Yeah, and then all of a sudden, Tiffany might make sense, too, because then maybe Tiffany would do like a Tiffany blue leather band or something like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's uh, un- indubitable, 
indubitable, indubitable, whatever. It's wow. <laughs> you can't doubt. I don't know. Um, it, we have been podcasting for a long time, but I, I don't think that there's a doubt that anybody in anybody's mind that we're going to get third party bans at some point, right? And there's some question about whether or not there's going to be like an authorization program or not or or whatever. But we're going to get third party bans, and I there's no way we're not going to get high fashion third party brands right. from say Burberry or whatever. But what about in conjunction with the addition? That's not something I thought of. Like what right. if they do say you can buy it at Tiffany's with the Tiffany ban, you can buy it at Burberry locations with the Burberry ban, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I don't know. I think that's so crazy though, that at the March 9th, of, I'm not surprised at all that they didn't, you know, talk much about it back in September, but I think it's crazy that at this event that they didn't talk about where, what those select retail locations are, because they're, they're not going to have another event before this happens. Is this the first Apple product, like not accessory, but major product line that you can't buy at every Apple store? Uh, yes. I, cause I don't I can't think of anything and I don't even have like a nagging sensation that I'm forgetting something because they've had special edition iPods and stuff before, but in general, those were just available, you know, at whatever stores until they ran out. It wasn't like, a, Oh, you can only buy it these places, right? It's like just, the U2 iPod or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Like, Oh, this store got three of them and then, the, you know, we ran out so we can't reorder, but it's not, you are never even offered this seems yeah. like interesting precedent to set. Yeah. Very weird. I thought it was a, a, a you know, again, the pricing in and of itself doesn't bother me. It doesn't make me fear for the company. It doesn't, but the, the, the messaging around the edition is to me, uh, it, it, it just suggests that there's a, a lot, they don't know much internally. They don't know what to do with it either. <laughs> yeah. Or they're of two minds of what to do with yeah, it. Some I guess people want one thing and other people want another and right. the compromise is just don't talk about it a whole lot, which right. is probably not so great. Right. But yeah. it lends credence to the idea that this is Johnny Ives, you know, driven Baby. and not, mm -hmm. not something that's coming from the central core of the company. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'll be very interested to see, you know, how this plays out. Yep. Um, all right. Well, let's wrap it up. I can't think of anything else. Um, Oh, one thing I will mention, sure. this is just an aside. We probably don't need to di dissect it a whole lot, but I think people are going to be really surprised at how much they use the crown. Oh, versus, versus the screen, yeah. because the I mean, there's a couple of reasons, but the crown is matched to the scrolling rate of the screen extremely well. So it feels like, you know, it's natural how much it accelerates and when it stops, the crown is, they match that really well, which is what Apple does. So I'm not too surprised. I'm not, not shocked. But they, um, there's also the fact that when your finger's on the screen, you're covering some of the screen. Yeah. So you're missing some of the data on a very small screen already, which is why I think the whole crown thing you know, executes well. So I think, yeah. I think that's going to be a big, I think it's going to be, as I talked to a lot of people who were like, Oh, I'm just going to, you know, I never thought that I'd use the crown. I, I'm just going to scroll on the screen, but then they go, Oh, you know, the screen actually, uh, the crown actually is really attractive for these reasons. Yeah. Uh, uh, I've heard the same thing from people who've been, you know, Apple friends who've been testing it, that it's totally, totally legit. It's, yep. at, you know, definitely a core part of it. Uh, I've said this numerous times, but I keep getting questions, so I might as well answer it again, is that the, the what do you do if you're left-handed? You turn the watch, you take the straps off, put the strap, the bottom strap on the top and the top strap on the bottom, and then you put it on your other wrist, and then your crown is beneath the communication button. You just turn the watch upside down. Mm -hmm. yep. um, I, I But it's like these, it's like probably the most frequently asked question I've gotten in the last three days. Yeah, and because it's muscle memory and you're left-handed, you're always going to be reaching for the same button in the same location. So it's not like yeah. it's going to throw you. That's just right. how you use your watch. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Did you, I, I see, that's the funny thing is they say that they tightened up the, the feel of the crown. I thought the crown felt great in September. I can't even imagine if they've changed it, how much better. It yeah. Was. I mean, that's what I had heard, but it, the crown that I used felt nice and tight, but it's been so long since September that I yeah. can't really tell, you know? Yeah. So unfortunately that's one of those things where we will, I don't know if we'll ever have empirical evidence, right. but yeah, I'm not surprised. It feels though. good. Yeah. yeah, no, because no. it's been a long time, and I'm sure that they, you know, it, I do. I think it's so central to their concept of how people will use it that the attention that they've poured into it is just incredible. Yeah, they fine tune it right down to the last second before they commit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Matthew Panzerino, people who can uh, read your work, your fine work at uh, TechCrunch, where you uh, write way more frequently than I do. <laughs> uh, but you do a great job. And on uh, Twitter, your username is at Panzer, P-A-N-Z-E-R. I, yep, I got that's that right. it. Yep. Anything else you want to pitch? No, not really. I mean, no. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm well, not a very pitchy kind of person. <laughs> thank you for your time recording this show. Thank you even more for your attention during the event on Monday being my uh, my go-to uh, let me text you questions. <laughs> <laughs> my pleasure. Anytime. Um, and, Thanks uh, for having me. I appreciate yeah. it. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Peace. All right. I'm, I'm hitting stop.